everyone, and welcome to the show. I'm Alistair Stevens. And I'm Lonnie Diane Rich. And this is Dusted, your monkey pants wearing Buffy the Vampire Slayer podcast. This week, <laughs> both parts of What's My Line. We decided, Yay! you know, what? why split it up? What There's kind of no callous person reason. would take this story, split it up over two weeks, huh? What kind of monster right. would do that I know. in November of 1997? <laughs> well, it was Sweeps. November's November's <laughs> Sweeps. It. And Sweeps actually mattered back then. Right. So that's a whole other thing. <laughs> These two episodes, the ninth and tenth episodes of season two, uh, this really is, I think, a, a turning point in Buffy the Vampire Slayer. Mm-hmm. Even if you look at the series as a whole, this is one of those big structural moments of inflection where the series changes direction, where it really manifests what it is. Yeah. It's, it's a, a knockout two-parter. Not mm-hmm. to, you know, leap ahead to the end of the show, but it's right. a knockout two-parter. <laughs> it is. And it's just one story. So it, really it is. makes sense for us to discuss it all in one bunch. So this episode might be a little bit longer than usual, but we're going to try to crack at it. So. We'll see what we can do. <laughs> I should also say that we are adding a new structural feature of our own yes. uh, this week. At the end of the show, after the little closing musical sting that normally is the sign for you to turn off your iPod and go mm-hmm. on with your daily life, <laughs> after that happens, we're going to have a little spoiler zone we're going to have a little discussion of this show in its proper context this episode i should say in its proper context we're going to throw forward to all that is to come if you haven't seen buffy the vampire slayer before if you are one of the many people i know who are watching this along with these little podcasts Mm -hmm. then you should stop at the closing music as you normally do but if you've already seen the show if you want to hear our thoughts on what's to come next and stick around it's gonna be fun because i've been trying to bite my tongue with limited success (laughs) and maybe Maybe having that mixed success, (laughs) having that spoiler zone at the end. Maybe I can I can hold myself until until we get there to talk about the things that are going to come, the things that are going to happen. Let's find out, shall we? All right, let's. What's my line? Part one and two aired on November seventeenth and twenty fourth, respectively, of nineteen ninety seven. The first part was written by Howard Gordon. This is his only Mm -hmm. script for Buffy, but he went on to later write for Angel and Twenty Four, as well as producing Angel and Twenty Four, and well. God, pretty much every pretty much everything. TV show of the last 15 years. <laughs> the man years. works is what we're saying. <laughs> Alongside Howard Gordon on scripting duties, yes. though, this is the first appearance Our in the Buffy Ingenue. canon, Marty Noxon. Marty Noxon, who will, not to spoil, but to be a big deal later on. So. Will be a big deal yeah. and not an uncontroversial figure in right. the annals of Buffy mm-hmm. history. Though I have to say, a fairly uncontroversial Mm-hmm. Debut, yeah, just a really solid, solid story. Her. Yeah, um, the first part was directed by David Solomon, also first time at bat for yeah. Buffy the Vampire Slayer. Mm-hmm. He will go on to direct 19 episodes of Buffy. Oh, so, we're gonna keep an eye on that guy, we certainly will, because mm-hmm. there's some really strong work in yeah. those 19 episodes. And the second part of What's My Line was directed by David Samuel, who previously brought us Never Kill a Boy on the First Date. Wow, and we'll return later this season with Go Fish toward mm-hmm. the end of the second season i i will not make judgments on those episodes well no because the thing is is that the directing he gets the script that he gets you know so i mean that's kind of a, a wild card and i don't think that the directing in those episodes was necessarily no the direction no the direction is not the fault the direction uh, is not the problem <laughs> those with episodes. those episodes no, you're entirely right this poor guy kind of got stuck with the schlubby episodes so it is though striking to see the difference between part one and part two of what's my life no, it is. for two halves of the same story the yeah. visual distinction is kind of jarring especially when you watch them one right after the other if you've yeah. got a week between, you can kind of like, but there well, is a, that that clear visual division between like night and day. And I don't know if they did that deliberately. The first one 
feels brighter it feels sunshiny oh, there's it's, like it's a, a real play with light Everything and then the next one d- goes back to that buffy shadow you know well, it's the buffy house style right i think the second part is completely consistent with what we've seen from the show uh, right throughout mm-hmm. the first part just looks like a different show every shot is framed differently yeah. the camera moves differently mm-hmm. all the sets are lit differently that's perhaps the most striking difference mm-hmm. is that the sets look different mm-hmm. because they are lit so differently. Yeah. The most striking example is the scene in the library in part one of the mm-hmm. story where there is this enormous, these shafts of light yeah. coming through those giant windows, those yeah. giant library windows that are normally, you know, just, just pale shadows against the wall. We're not usually <laughs> looking to those for real illumination, but here they're casting these shafts of light. We get mm-hmm. this, this chiaroscuro effect across mm-hmm. the whole set and it looks fantastic. Mm-hmm. It, it is really does just a knockout a knockout piece of set design and set dressing um so the the direction is very assured mm-hmm. i think in the first part which is not to say that the second part is bad just merely that it suffers by I'm comparison actually more comfortable with the second part though like because there's some, it is very buffy house style it doesn't draw attention to itself as much as in the first episode it does no that's true so, it would certainly be fair i think to perhaps accuse david solomon of, of maybe a little you know insecurity jazz hands there's a little jazz hands, <laughs> some there's a little jazz hands going, going on, on exactly. in that first episode which is you know fair enough i mean he did a good job with it and it's ha, not really like did. in and of itself it's it's a really beautiful piece of direction but as part of a whole it does really draw attention to itself that's true because one of the things that you have to do as a director as a producer as a writer you know anytime you're integrating yourself into the machine yeah. of a network tv show mm-hmm. anytime you're kind of particularly joining a show that's already you know right. already has some momentum behind mm-hmm. it your job isn't necessarily to redefine Reinvent the show the in your own terms right. but mm-hmm. rather to be you know be a cog in that machine be a productive you know exactly piece of the engineer come in and do your do your job yeah but, um, but do it without drawing attention to yourself yeah Yeah. i think so and so i mean honestly like i while i appreciate the skill and the beauty that that's in uh what's my line part one i I do feel a little more comfortable uh in in part two where we're just sort of settling into this kind of established visual world i'm gonna give him a pass because i love the visual style of the first one but i I do completely see where you're coming Mm -hmm. from on that yes Let's get into our breakdown, shall we? We've got a lot to talk about, and we're going to try and and split some of the the grander thematic stuff Mm -hmm. out into a separate conversation after we've moved through both episodes, but we're going to have to move at quite a clip to get through this. So let's get started. Previously on Buffy the Vampire Slayer, we have a short glimpse of three of the great love stories of Buffy the Vampire Slayer, Spike and Drusilla, Buffy and Angel, Mm -hmm. Giles and one of his books. Yes. Really, you know, (laughs) these are the ties that bind. These are the loves that burn. It is the Sunnydale High Career Fair, and the campus is busier than we've ever seen it. This is another example of David Solomon's directorial style, I yes. think. He packs these sets There's with people. There's a lot people. of extras here. Yeah. Sunnydale High feels like a real school for the first time in, I It feels in, like I school know, with living season. students, yes. Yeah, it's, it's pretty great. <laughs> Xander, Buffy, and Willow are agonizing over their career aptitude tests. Xander doesn't want to leave childhood behind. Willow is excited for what comes next. And Buffy, oh Buffy, already has a pretty strong sense of where her life will take her. And this is right up front, I think, introducing the main theme. A theme which might escape you if you aren't familiar with the TV show, Mm -hmm. What's My Line? As in fact, (laughs) being British, I wasn't. 
Uh, I took it to be some kind of, I don't know, stage direction mm-hmm. thing, some kind of, oh, you know, play or theatrical yeah. uh, reference. But of course, What's My Line for the Uninitiated was a game show which ran on CBS from 1950 to 1967. It is basically a guessing game yeah. where you quiz people on their occupations mm-hmm. and try to arrive at some kind of conclusion in a timely fashion. Which just goes to show you, that ran for 17 years, but we get well, one season of Go On. That's sure, wrong. Sure, but I mean, it was the 50s and early 60s. <laughs> There was no internet to compete with. (laughs) It was basically just either get an egg cream or watch this show. Not to mention that that entire season was produced for $27 and a button. (laughs) Television in those days. It was a different world. True enough. True enough. (laughs) So this is our preoccupation. Mm -hmm. This is our kind of central thematic thrust. Uh, This idea that that you are what you do, that that your life Mm -hmm. is in some sense defined by your occupation or at least your vocation, you Mm -hmm. know, and having the freedom to choose or not. Yeah. um, That's going to play. In, in a number of different ways, that's going to play heavily. It's, it's in a the nice of these thematic episodes. dance that they do. They always stay connected with that with that theme in these episodes, which I really like. We also take the take the opportunity right off the bat to introduce Cordelia to yeah. have her very neatly and, and precisely delineate the limits of her altruistic impulses <laughs> and to spar with Xander not for the last time in uh-huh. these episodes in Spike's lair meanwhile Drusilla is laying out tarot cards while a bespectacled vampire tries to translate an ancient <laughs> dome which contains the cure for Drusilla's condition this is the book for those of you keeping track at yeah. home this is the Deluxe manuscript this mm-hmm. is the book that was stolen from Giles's library just a few episodes ago this book though is a challenge even for dalton's legendary capabilities and as drusilla falters further spike identifies the thorn in his side the bloody slayer spike applies some gentle persuasion to dalton but drusilla interrupts this code needs a key okay so here's something that i wanted to kind of talk about a little bit we have we have dalton right who is this this kind of like vampire geek right you know um and he is just reading a book just yep. kind of trying to figure out what's going on. Spike, no vamp face. Drusilla, no vamp face. Dalton, always resting vamp face. So here's what I'm wondering. <laughs> like, first of all, my understanding of how vamp face works is that it's not necessarily something that you can control a lot. Like the feed comes over a vampire and then that's when they they turn on the vamp face. We've, they get angry. They turn on the vamp face. Yeah, we've seen vampires vamp face when provoked certainly right but i'm not sure that it's ever been established that, it, that it's out with kind of conscious control it seems that like they should be able to we've also seen vampires involuntarily well yeah no i guess there are times there are moments where you know you go into vamp face and it's yeah. like an, ex- an accentuation of whatever it is that you're you're saying at that moment when uh, but... drusilla had sheila bound up in mm-hmm. their lair uh, right she voluntarily went well, that was because she and did so yeah. in an intimidating fashion and did that, you know, while it was off screen, while sure. the shot was off screen so that they didn't have to pay for the transition of it. Um, yeah, no, I think that there are. But I, I guess up to this point, I'd always kind of felt that like the vamp face was something that you saved for the special let's, occasion, let's... like the tuxedo or the glittery gown. And so here we have Dalton doing this like vampire stuff. And I'm I'm wondering, A, like what that says about how vamp face works um you know and how much control you have over it because we're going to come to something later where there isn't as much control um and uh and also like why he would choose to put on resting vamp face like he's just casually hanging out i think if you're hanging out in spike's lair with spike and drusilla and wearing you know a sweater vest right that perhaps you you want to like keep your vampire status up Uh, it's social currency okay you you want to look like a badass you you want to make sure that everybody remembers that you're a part of the team you are also a vampire (laughs) 
and extremely dangerous, <laughs> even yeah, while trans—I mean, ancient Latin. If you're not dressed like Billy Idol, I think it's pretty fair that that you All know right. you, you right. adopt the position. Dalton's a little got some bit. security <laughs> issues. I totally buy that. But we will say let's let's stick a pin in the idea of, of voluntary or involuntary vamp face yeah. and come back to that because that is going we'll, to be we're directly relevant. Spend a little time relevant with that later. Yeah. Later. Yes. Uh, so we come out of the credits and we pick up in the graveyard while patrolling. Buffy finds Dalton chiseling away in a mausoleum. She retreats unseen, waits for him to emerge. She quips, but while she dusts another vampire, Dalton escapes. We are just moving, just right, right off the bat. Not mm-hmm. a second of this episode is wasted. It's great stuff. And the pace, it, despite being fast, it's not at all frenetic. Right. There's a mm-hmm. real clarity to mm-hmm. the direction and to the script mm-hmm. here. I think everybody deserves credit. Absolutely. Uh, for making this tangled story play out as smoothly as it does because Mm -hmm. there are a lot of balls particularly by the time we hit the end of this episode there are a lot of balls being kept in the air with seemingly little effort right and that's impressive stuff Mm -hmm. um angel meanwhile is hanging out in buffy's bedroom totally normal not weird at all and she surprises him by climbing in through her own window angel had a bad feeling and wanted to check in buffy is cranky because of career week angel already knows about career week Yes. Because of the lurking. Because he lurks. Totally normal. Around the high totally school. Totally okay. Yeah, no, there is there is like a, a smacking of Edward Cullen in this episode with Angel. There is this, this you know, stalking in her bedroom. There is the lurking. There's the watching. There's the high school hanging out. Yet these are the bad vampiric yeah. impulses. This, yeah. is, this is the bad side of, of your brooding vampire, yeah. you know, hero. Um, it is a little weird that Angel, you know, two centuries old, mm-hmm. possessed of enormous power, you know, a precarious position in the world, mm-hmm. caught betwixt worlds, if you will. It's a little weird that he would hang out at Sunnydale High with yeah. such regularity that he knows it's career That week. he knows it's career week. Well, okay, maybe he got the newsletter. Maybe he put his name on the mailing list and got the <laughs> newsletter. Could be. <laughs> I'm just saying there's many different ways to lurk. Well, and he's always home during the day, so he has to deal with a lot of people coming by. You know? he he's does. probably really good friends with his mailman. I imagine. I yeah. can only assume so. <laughs> Buffy wants a normal life. Angel says that he'll never be a kid, despite all the broody, sulky lurking. Mm-hmm. lurking, if you will. <laughs> he goes to Buffy's dresser and, okay, small little production note. When yes. he goes to the dresser, he passes in front of the mirror. Yeah. And you see him reflected just, oh, just for no. like a half a second in the mirror, which would be fine were it not for the fact if that they we just spent a moment on him not being visible in the mirror. Not being visible in the mirror. You know, it's a tough production thing to do to like have to really watch every reflective surface around it's every vampire difficult. that you've got. And, um, you know, so but, I mean, I sympathize. But in a, in, a, in the scene in which you just had Buffy looking at him yes. we see the mirror and the no reflection and then we go to the two of them and we see them together um it's it's a little bit like you know at least in this scene could you not have just exactly you know, yeah right. if you're going to draw attention to it the onus is on you to be consistent at least the within scene. the frame of this one yes. scene mm-hmm. we, we need to to just extend it that far if no further angel just happens to know the location and the operating hours of a local skating rink again no again, weird at all days are empty and a date is implied right well here's the other thing though about this scene that i kind of wanted to bring up and i know that like i'm i am reading buffy from a completely different angle now than i ever did before because i'm old now (laughs) so like (laughs) i see everything from joyce's point of view here she is she's she's crawling into her room it's one of these things that they call out that she's like oh well no my mom's in los angeles for a thing so i have the whole house to myself and he's like well why did you crawl in through the bedroom like because they wanted her to crawl in through the 
Oh, I, I actually really like that. that it was kind habit. of a cute because she's like out of habit. <laughs> yeah. But the thing is, like Joyce is is like not present a lot of the time. And I mean, I understand she's a single mother. She's got a lot of work to do. But like she's gone so she's much. Gone There's because so we much. don't want because we don't want the mom. Yeah, we, we don't want to have mellow, to have that right? justification. Right? We want <laughs> exactly. to be able to do, particularly within the frame of these episodes. We want Buffy to be able to be on the run right. in a really meaningful but way. But Buffy's like sixteen. I mean, our daughter is sixteen. I keep thinking about like I don't want to leave her alone for like extended, <laughs> you know, like five days. I'm like yeah, for, for a week. It's how fine. Do you do that? I don't know. Well, I guess, okay, I guess it's it's just different now because I'm looking at it from this perspective. Like, back when I first watched Buffy, I made absolutely no... Well, Buffy's also high school. Uh, she's also, sorry, mm-hmm. uh, TV 16. She's also right, TV Right, because in high reality, school. she's 24, right? Yeah. <laughs> and, and the life that she leads is not the life, I think, that... that any 16 year old it's kind no, of reality is no defense for fiction you can't it's, it's, exactly yeah. exactly and in a way i'm grateful that while it is a bit of a stumbling block to have joyce just be conspicuously absent for, yeah. for the entire episode i'm kind of glad that they just take care of it and, and they and just get, get her and out of the way and we don't have to worry and we don't have to that, yeah exactly uh, at any subsequent point it, it's nice to just have it be taken care of um yeah and there are some inconsequential details in this sequence mm-hmm. that we'll we'll uh we'll come back to later because yes. there are some puzzling elements mm-hmm. um that, that we'll alight upon when we finished our, our move through this story back at sunnydale high cordelia and xander find the results of their career aptitude tests mm-hmm. I love all the sparring yeah. between Cordelia and Xander. Just adorable. Just the best. Mm-hmm. Uh, the most fun. We learned that Cordelia is going to be a personal shopper or a motivational speaker. <laughs> One of those seems more dubious than the other. Xander is lined up for a career in, in prison guarding. Uh, Buffy in law enforcement. And Willow is a mystery. Nobody came back with dun, anything dun, for dun. Willow. In the library, meanwhile, Giles has assembled every book in the entire world. Buffy fills him in on the events in the graveyard the night before, and then, as you do, takes a moment to speculate about the origins of the phrase, the whole nine yards. Yes. <laughs> uh, the etymology geek in me wanted to, you know, clarify. No, we just went through this. We you don't just... know. No. We don't know what the origin Doesn't of the phrase, the whole nine yards, is. Doesn't it come from making a kilt? Is. No. Isn't that no, the... No, that's a story. There are stories about ammo belts used... I thought it was uh, a football thing. <laughs> no, it, it's it's none of these things. There, Nobody there knows what it is. There are innumerable stories about where the whole nine yards came from, most of which originate in World War II. Wow. But the uh, the phrase itself predates World War II by, by quite some time. Well, there you go. So nobody knows where the phrase the whole nine yards comes from. <laughs> I'm fascinated. I'm going to believe it's a kilt thing because it takes nine yards of cloth to make a kilt. Sure. And it's so. completely logical that that would pass into... To the american vernacular earlier in the 20th century okay let me tell you there are more people claiming to be scottish in america than there are in scotland it is a thing here oh you don't have to tell me giles is distressed by the theft from the mausoleum and scolds buffy for her cavalier attitude this is our traditional first act scolding yes giles has to just reframe mm-hmm. the discussion he has to put buffy in the position where she has to make you know irrational choices in yes. order to drive the plot forward uh she is petulant of course but giles is more concerned about what was taken mm-hmm. spike meanwhile has in his possession a large gold cross taken from the tomb and a fancy red velvet cushion 1499 at hobby lobby mm-hmm. dalton raises the small matter of the slayer and spike is newly resolved to cure drusilla he must take care of buffy this sounds like a job for the order of taraka taraka thus we have our our conflict locked for at least the first 
half of, yes. of mm-hmm. this episode. Willow and Xander meet at the career fair and try to cover for Buffy's absence by playing up to Principal Snyder. <laughs> he only gets one scene in this episode and yet steals the show entirely. Yes. Uh, and it's time, in fact, for our favorite recurring feature here on Dusted. Nicholas Brandon does a ton with the material he's given. <laughs> I feel like there should be a fanfare. There should be there should be something. Yeah. Um, so great. Uh-huh. So when the script is this strong, mm-hmm. It doesn't call for the kind of performance that Nicholas Brendan gives it. Yeah. But he genuinely brings such, I don't know, th- this this mix of confidence and humility, this kind of the energy and loser commitment. bravado. That, yeah, that you get from both uh, Nicholas Brendan and Alison Hannigan yeah. whenever they are on the screen. I don't think I have ever seen either one of them like phone a performance in or even forget phoning it in. Just, you know, just doing the doing what's required. They right. always go above and beyond. There's They always bring a, like this little subtlety to it that had I seen it written on the page, I might not have read what they bring to it into the dialogue. But they, they do such a wonderful job and it's mm-hmm. so fun. It's so fun to just see them you know bantering with armin shimmerman it, it's and, the best and honestly like does it does it do a whole lot for the story because there really isn't a conflict with principal snyder in this story no except not, but... that we need to lean upon the career fair later right. to kind of motivate buffy so we mm-hmm. need to set the conflict there and why that wouldn't she you... has to be there she has yeah, to, yeah why wouldn't you have this this no, moment here it's uh, just so fun it's, it's great and the particular standout for me is is uh xander's line not your actual shoes because you're a tiny person exactly <laughs> so good <laughs> Snyder tells Xander that uh, that everything he says is an airborne toxic event which apart from being one of the best put downs in history is a reference not to the California indie rock band airborne toxic event with whom I was generally familiar uh, but to the novel White Noise a, a critique of contemporary American culture from the mid 1980s and and I've had one of those weird confluences Mm -hmm. i watched this episode first a couple of days ago and then yesterday was listening to a podcast on a completely unrelated topic which also brought up the novel white noise and also made specific reference to airborne toxic event wow okay just one of these weird synchronicities that makes you you think that everything is interconnected everything is interconnected (laughs) and that's my anecdote for this week (laughs) xander leaves and willow is approached by two men fresh from central casting she's Mm -hmm. ushered through a curtain into a corner of the student lounge where she is told that she's of interest to the world's leading software concern only one other student is as interesting willow moves to reveal oz who is inspecting the canapes okay I love Willow, as yes. you know. Mm-hmm. I love Oz, mm-hmm. as you know. We didn't need to do this. We didn't need to have this overly elaborate meet cute that doesn't actually contribute anything to the plot of the story at all. Yeah. Yeah. It's because it's this one weird beat in this episode, and then there's one weird beat yeah. in the next episode, and then Oz is present for, you know, part this, of the climax. Yeah, this whole thing, uh, you know, it seems like it's it's part of like bringing Oz in to the group, you know, like adding him into the mix. Um but yeah, this whole weird thing about, you know, the the secret software, you know, billionaire who wants to come and meet with them and all this kind of stuff. It does seem a little bit weird. It seems a little bit forced, I guess. Yeah. Um and it doesn't really contribute to the overall narrative. Particularly when we learn that Oz isn't interested in computers and isn't Right, so you know he's no they... match for Willow in that regard. Why is he even? Why is he even there? Well, apparently yeah. he's just very, very smart. Apparently so. You know, but you buy. There's yeah. enough nuance in that performance. No, I mean he's, he's, he's get... obviously there's obviously you know a lot of gears grinding in there. So 
Uh, Buffy and Giles, meanwhile, <laughs> are discussing the conflict between Buffy's sacred duty and her desire for a real, normal life. You know, mm -hmm. that's a thing that they do all the time. This is the sequence where they're walking through the graveyard during the day. Right. And this is one of these times where Which it is was lit so weird. in such a beautiful, vibrant, mm -hmm. rich way. And it looks like a different show. It does. Mm -hmm. It looks like it, it's almost, you know, cinematic framing. Yeah. Mm -hmm. we're, we're getting so much more camera movement, so much more interesting angles on things. Mm -hmm. Really, really striking a beautiful sequence as they walk through the graveyard and, and have the conversation that they have every episode yes um, exactly <laughs> <laughs> though I mean I, I say that you know snarkily but obviously we are still framing the debate right that's going to come later this idea of purpose and and while it is perhaps a fairly obvious and trivial conflict to have mm -hmm. this idea of, of Buffy's desire for a normal life versus her duty as Slayer yeah. I do think that on the whole this episode addresses it in a really interesting way and gives us some real nuance that we haven't seen before right gives us some perspective on Buffy and on what it is to be a Slayer mm -hmm. that we haven't really explored in the episodes well, till now the thing about this though that always kind of threw me off is that she's gonna need a job I mean she's gonna have to pay bills and stuff the Slayer doesn't do that like so I mean I think that it's the choice between having a personal life and being a slayer i see that but she's gonna need a day job you know she's gonna have to have some kind of career in right, order to pay her she's bills going you know? to have to have a movie career where you basically can work whenever you feel like it and and true fair enough because if, she's, if you yeah. do the version of buffy the vampire slayer where she's an adult mm -hmm. then she's you know i don't know a columnist for a newspaper or but she... she's looking forward i mean she's looking at her life and and acting as though she's not gonna have a job which she's gonna have to have no but she's I, not... I buy this conflict a lot more when it's about her personal life because you have to give up something to make room for being the slayer and since she has to have sure. she has to go to school it's the personal life that suffers but she's you know? never going to have the career she's never going to even be allowed to think about or to choose well obviously yes because the slayer is always going to have to come first so she's going to have to have something that can yeah. that she can be casual about i mm -hmm. see those two things as being connected she's yeah. never going to be able to have to have a real job she's mm -hmm. never going to be able to, to have something that consumes her that diverts her that right. rewards her mm -hmm. she's only ever going to be able to work minimum wage and she's probably going well, to not to mention switch jobs every you know, six months not you know? to be grim about it but slayers don't tend to <laughs> well, see, they don't tend to get like the the fifty year retirement gold watch. No, you know? no, that's I mean, certainly they, true. They They'll... don't tend to have long lives that you can build a career in. Do we have a sense? I mean, beyond you know general foreboding, mm -hmm. do we have a sense that slayers generally die young? At this, At point, this point, no. At right. this point, we haven't really dealt with that. They're but. vulnerable that they do die. We know that Spike is killed But we've talked about, Watcher, about Giles and the Watcher Diaries and yeah. the, the Slayers that have died before. And I think that it was it was an ominous like you know subtext oh, sure, that, sure. that Slayers live short, brutal well, lives. Unless we forget, Buffy's already died once. Yes. Um, inside the mausoleum, Buffy and Giles find the shattered reliquary of, of Josephus Delac. The book that was taken was Delac's manuscript. As we said, Giles is putting the pieces together something is coming and it isn't good mm -hmm. cut to the bus station where <laughs> a biker type with a scar across one unseeing eye steps into the bright light of the sunnydale afternoon mm -hmm. a cosmetic salesman meanwhile stops by buffy's neighbor's house mrs callish the door closes a woman screams and at the airport, a member of the ground crew investigates the hold of a recently landed plane and is swiftly and efficiently knocked unconscious by a young woman with shiny pants and a snakeskin <laughs> choker. Danger has come to Sunnydale. Shiny pants. I Ask not for, for whom way. the shiny pants toll. They toll for thee. 
So, firstly, we should acknowledge, let's establish that that uh, Sunnydale now apparently has a thriving international airport. Oh, yeah. Um, uh, apparently, we, we're just continuing to expand the scope of this. Absolutely. Path. Although, I guess, is it is it necessarily the case that the airport is in Sunnydale? I would say it's whatever the local airport is. It could Maybe be a, the Los a Angeles airport. And then she's, you know, she, she gets the plane and she comes out of the cargo hold. And then she has to go get in a cargo hold of a bus, you know. <laughs> Climb into the trunk day. of a taxi. She's got a busy day ahead. <laughs> Hide in a saddlebag on there someone's you bicycle. Go. Absolutely. <laughs> <laughs> At the library, Giles continues our grammatical education by clarifying, thank you for, for, for this, that both Slade and Slew are correct. Uh-huh. I'll take it. Slightly more importantly, he introduces the Delac Cross, a decoder ring for ancient manuscripts. Buffy excuses herself from this research party and takes off to skate with Angel. While she does this, she's wearing this incredibly conspicuous blue scarf. Mm-hmm. And I wondered for a moment if this was continuity, if she was wearing this scarf to hide the scar from the tattoo that Ethan gave her. Oh, And it's not, because already earlier in the episode, she's wandering around with her hair up and little spaghetti straps right. and this whole thing. Yeah. But it would have been so lovely. To it, have a little bit of continuity. They tend to give Buffy... Because getting a tattoo removed, as I understand, is kind of a complicated It process. must be canonical that, yeah. that it's been several weeks at least. Mm-hmm. Um, so I, I, I don't know what to make of that. But I don't we know. Can no, I think she was assume. wearing the scarf so that when she went skating, it could trail behind her. Wow, well, and it sure did. It does. Let's have some twinkly piano music and let's just <laughs> let's just spin for a while. Shall we just I spin? No, but it's so nice. She gets out there on the ice. She's so yeah. sweet and she's got this, you know, skating. and yeah. It's 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 great. Mm-hmm. It's It's good stuff. Uh, it's nice to see Buffy be free of mm-hmm. her obligations, even if just for a little while. I felt that it loses something because she's by herself. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Buffy is always alone. She is always, yeah. you know, distanced from her friends uh, by virtue of her nature. Mm-hmm. And it would have been really nice if she'd shared that moment, even with Angel. Even right. if Angel. I don't necessarily see why Angel couldn't have been there other than... Let's Other not than make David, David Boreanaz look silly not. by skating. Right. Well, that, okay. Because Sarah Michelle Geller, my understanding is that she was a figure skater like yeah. when she was younger. So she has a lot of experience with this. And unless David Boreanaz was also a figure skater, which I highly doubt, or, you know, just like a good hockey player or whatever, like he, he's going to look goofy next to her. Um, yeah, no, that's true. That's so true. I think that having her skate by herself, and I think it does kind of, that she does this thing that's so wonderful, and she does it so beautifully, and yet it is such a small part, like she can't make it part of her life. Yeah. I think, th- I thought that that spoke to theme nicely, and it was nice to see her kind of just, you know, do no, something. I, I it think was you're really, entirely yeah. right. Mm-hmm. Yeah, no, it, it's thematically consistent, and there are obviously, yes, production concerns that mm-hmm. account for the fact that she's right. by herself. Mm-hmm. Um, it's, it's more like uh, an empathic response, you know, yeah. for me see yeah, her kind of sad. do this thing that she excels at mm-hmm. uh, but it's is never going to be able to herself. yeah 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 it's it's a sad moment um she slips on the ice in the most graceful way possible i know and slides gently into <laughs> on the her wall. bum all the way to the <laughs> so sweet. it's very sweet it, it's the most well, graceful especially because she's sitting down in the sitting position and just moving backward like it's an air <laughs> ram you know and then just gently bumps into the side and like when i have fallen down ice skating it's always been like my head that is like hit the wall or oh like, sure you know? oh it's ugly i mean it's always awkward but she's just so graceful even in falling no ice skating is like it's, it's like being a swan you're either completely graceful 
or completely not. I am There's completely no not. Stay. I am um, completely not, but it is fun. <laughs> Moreover, not only yeah. does she bump ever so gently into the edge <laughs> of the rink, but she happens to bump ever so gently in- into the edge of the rink uh, where the biker guy that we saw earlier happens to be looming. Right. He grabs her with an arm around her neck. There is a short fight scene. Mm-hmm. Angel intervenes. Ultimately, Buffy slashes the biker guy across the throat with the blade of her skate. Which is, she uses what she's got. I <laughs> Well, I this like plays the into this idea. There. Yeah. Exactly. Mm-hmm. This plays into the idea that Buffy's an extemporaneous fighter. Yeah. That, that she's mm-hmm. scrappy. Yeah. Which is an element of Buffy's character that we don't get into a lot. But I like it. But she's got she's I got like that. guts, you know. Yeah. She's got she's got Moxie that yeah, kid. She does. <laughs> uh it is interesting though that that you know, you, you talk about the the intent of the story butting up against your production considerations Mm -hmm. this is a prime example yeah you want narratively i get it to have buffy you know use her skate to slash the guy's throat to have him drop to the ice all of that stuff is wonderful when you do it without a single drop of blood yeah it looks a little odd i'm not sure that it's entirely especially when he falls face down on the ice because against that white ice the blood but we don't see a lot of blood in Buffy. Only under very, very particular circumstances. Yeah. Angel has his little his little nick above his eyebrow now. Right. Mm-hmm. Uh, but that kind of thing we but see. But there isn't gore. I mean, it's dusting it's and yeah, blowing up yeah. in flame and all of that kind of stuff. Network we television in 1997. Yeah. You know? yeah. It'd be really interesting to see what AMC would do with a Buffy reboot in the style of The Walking Dead. Oh, It'd be interesting God. to see what, what their special effects <laughs> geniuses could do uh, when they had an actual you know story to play with. Right. Um, ooh, Veiled slam at the Walking Dead. Oh there. My we'll, God. we'll talk about that on our upcoming Walking Dead podcast. <laughs> <laughs> so it's it, it's a great sequence. It's not at all clear, I think, on the first viewing exactly what happened, but it, it serves its purpose. This guy is taken care of, and we move on to a much more interesting and and punchy beat. This scene apparently was not just conceived of by Joss Whedon himself, mm-hmm. but was also scripted by him. This is a big oh. moment. Mm-hmm. This is the moment where Buffy kisses Angel's vamp face. Right, and this is the. Picture up from our discussion of Dalton earlier yeah where it's unclear to what degree vamp face is voluntary we've right. never seen Angel kind of struggle to contain his vamp face yeah um there's no real reason well after they kissed the first time yeah because he was you know I'm, I'm assuming it was because he was you know sexually turned on that all of a sudden he had this vamp face sure which of course has immediate like you know erection analogies you know but <laughs> If that's where you want to go with it, okay. That does make I me uncomfortable of... about Dalton sitting reading the Delac manuscript. <laughs> well, you, you know got some what? explaining to do, buddy. People, people get excited about things. <laughs> I'm just saying that's between Delac and his manuscript. That's fine, uh, or not Delac, Dalton, Dalton and Delac. Um, but anyway, uh, yeah, no. So I don't know, like, because he obviously at this moment she, you know, goes to kiss him, and he's like, no, 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 I'm in vamp face. You know, give me a minute or whatever. You know, right? But he's not. But he uh, he can't shut it down. I mean, if he could Apparently. shut it down, he would. But she kisses his vamp face anyway. And the thing is, like, you know, I'm like, I'm thinking about those teeth and how sharp they are, and like that. See, you know, I'm a little caught up on on the the symbolism of it all. I'm a little right. caught because she says that she didn't notice. Yeah, we get this very clear, explicit mm-hmm. reference that, that that she sees past the demon. Yes, to the human within. Mm-hmm. And I'm not sure that that's like thematically consistent i'm not sure Mm -hmm. that that's the metaphor that we want to go for with angel you know Mm -hmm. i'm not sure that 
Angel at his core is the the brooding, tortured human, mm-hmm. and he has this superficial layer of vamp. It seems right. more often than not to be the other way around. Exactly. And mm-hmm. we're going to have a lot of time to talk about you know the soul right. and exactly how this point of interaction works um, works with Angel. Mm-hmm. There's there's a lot of that ahead. Yeah. Not to not to you know foreshadow too much <laughs> the upcoming episodes of Buffy the Vampire Slayer. Let's let's push on in Spike's layer. Drusilla turns over the first of the three tarot cards, no problem. The other two, the bug Mm -hmm. and the leopard, will handle it. Angel forewarns Buffy that she is in danger. They kiss and they are watched from a distance by the girl with the shiny pants. My shiny pants. That was going to be the sequel, the next sequel to the girl with the the, the dragon tattoo. Oh! The girl with the shiny pants. The girl with the shiny pants. There you go. Uh, In the library, meanwhile, Giles diagnoses Buffy with a chronic case of the Order of Taraka. Giles advises that Buffy retreat and protect herself. Buffy, of course, doesn't want to go, but Giles, too, is full of foreboding. This is not the first time that we have seen Giles and Angel tag team Buffy. (laughs) This is not the first time that they have both counseled her Mm -hmm. in the same way. And and it seems to inspire nothing but rebellion. You think yeah. they have a conversation about it. You know, it's like a PTA meeting. Angel should come in once a week and just sit down and talk with Giles, mm-hmm. and re- mm-hmm. so they can really discuss Buffy's needs and kind of right. help guide her where she needs Make to Make sure go. they're both on the same page. <laughs> Under Giles's VO, and this is another interesting directorial choice. We don't oftentimes have uh, have characters voice over scenes that they are not present yeah. in. Mm-hmm. But under Giles's voiceover, we cut to Mrs. Kalish's house, where the cosmetic salesman is covered in and also made of wriggling worms. Uh. It's pretty great. It's as as a monster, mm-hmm. uh, particularly in the Buffyverse, we're used to a lot of, of rubber-suited, yeah. you know, mm-hmm. <laughs> classic network TV monsters. Mm-hmm. Right. Um, this is something very different mm-hmm. and is therefore much eerier. Right. It's, well, especially because he looks like he looks like a, you know, a teacher at the school, you right, know, like right. just like your average dude from a bad town, you know, that he is he is made of worms, uh, doesn't look at all dangerous, you know, upon you, you first looking at him. But then, you know, yeah. made of worms. So made you know, of worms. really gross worms, <laughs> really gross segmented worms. Accompanied by a handheld camera, Buffy walks the unusually crowded halls of Sunnydale High. This is where all those extras from the opening scene mm-hmm. are really felt. This 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 claustrophobic, paranoid yeah. uh, feeling through this, this sequence is really strong. Uh, when Oz passes within range of her Slayer's strength, she pins him to the wall by the throat. She apologizes and lets him go, and Oz looks stunned. He's really just a part of the show now, isn't like, he? That girl is so tense. <laughs> <laughs> Willow, Xander, and Giles are looking for Buffy, but she's nowhere to be found. We saw her pass by her house wearing flannel, which is never good, and Xander confirms that those wacky teenage girls just can't unplug their phones. <laughs> Yeah, we ha- there's some explaining going on. There's some shoring right, up uh, right. in that sequence to mm-hmm. explain uh, where we go next, which is Buffy breaking into Angel's basement apartment. Mm-hmm. She explores a little and curls up on his bed without taking her boots off, which is just rude. Right. I mean, my God, <laughs> well, he's a vampire. Angel, he's not a monster. Exactly. He's also a guy who, like, obviously takes great care. I mean, the decorating of his of his house with all these, like, little... Like, he doesn't live like your standard, you know, bachelor. Your standard single bachelor, like pizza boxes on the floor. He's got a nice little... He's got a nice your little broody decorative. life is, well, frankly, depressing. <laughs> is that not accurate? <laughs> uh, it's not inaccurate. <laughs> 
pizza boxes and an Xbox, you know. No, instead he has this this rare, I don't know, Etruscan artifact. Yes, exactly. I mean, it's it's very it's very decorated. This is you know, this is a guy who who takes pride in in, you know, like we said, he's home all day. He watches a lot of HGTV. I know. Yeah, he's he's really he's big fan of the Property Brothers. Angel, speaking of yes. the property brother himself, mm-hmm. he is cruising for information at Willie's Dive Bar. Willie tries to buy him off with some good pig's blood, but Angel isn't interested in snacks. Plus, he still has that chest of blood from the hospital. Well, uh, no, because I back. guess we've we've figured out a bunch of people uh, emailed in after that last podcast, and they were like, no, 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 no. Angel drinks pig's blood from the butcher. He does not drink human blood. But he had in his refrigerator. Did he not? Wasn't it? Yeah, didn't he the, have like I'm, the hanging bags. Of I blood? don't know why you would put pig's blood, pig's blood in a hanging in a, bag unless that's just like a juice box well, for, for vampires. <laughs> but it may, maybe it keeps it fresh. Sure, maybe. maybe that's like a fresh. Maybe he gets the pig's blood. Maybe he just stole the the little plastic containers from the hospital, which is forgivable. <laughs> it just leaves like and a bucket of blood, blood out front. Puts his blood in there, and then he just sips it. From the thing. It's like those bras that have the wine in them and you get the little straw that you sure, sit from. Sure. The, the, the bras you that have You have to be creative when you're on a liquid we should, diet. We should clearly put a link in the show notes to the bras with the wine The in wine them. bra. <laughs> Angel threatens Willie, demands to know where Spike is. Willie is about to tell him when he's savagely attacked by the girl from the plane who, look, we'll just call her Kendra for convenience Let's sake. Just Let's I, just do that. I'm happy calling her shiny pants. shiny pants. Shiny pants. Okay, she's attacked by shiny pants. Uh... <laughs> Kendra kicks his ass but good and locks him in a cage open to the imminent dawn sun. Kendra, oh. meanwhile, is going to find Buffy. Giles calls Xander and tells him to investigate Buffy's house. He should get Cordelia to drive him because why not? Yes. Uh, Willow, meanwhile, has well, fallen she asleep. She has a car. She's not a great driver, but she has a car. Cordelia's car owning is pretty much one of her most, you know, it makes it look everybody has a role willow's good with the computers xander makes comic the relief at the heart right and <laughs> cordelia drives everybody around this is you know everybody's got a role to play she should at least have a cool nickname <laughs> wheels <laughs> they call her stick shift oh <laughs> no they might yeah, be well, calling her that but not for her yeah, car. as we learn right? <laughs> <laughs> willow is awoken and we learn that she has frog fear yes pretty much the cutest it's moment it's a cute little what was it uh, worn the tadpoles? <laughs> it's lovely, and and the actual functional part of mm-hmm. that that I really like is is we see Giles at one of his more paternalistic yeah. moments. Um, there are these odd moments in Buffy where we really feel Giles's you know, the age gap. Yeah. We really feel his different perspective, and there are moments when particularly Willow is vulnerable. Mm-hmm. That Giles assumes this much more paternalistic, much yeah. more compassionate. Uh, well, you also yeah. see the thing that I love about this, and I mean, we do, you know, we come up against this a bit. Is that these these are supposed to be, you know, teenagers. These are supposed to be, but they 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 feel so adult because they have so many responsibilities that are that are adult responsibilities. You know, saving the world is not a kid sure. thing. You know, um, and I like this moment of seeing Willow as a little girl because one of the things that is that you know now that we have teenage girls about this age is how like deeply they sleep when they wake up it is like adult as an adult i don't think i've ever slept that deeply but like the kids when they're asleep they are gone they are out that is it you know and when they wake up there is this moment where they're just so tiny and they're so young and you Mm -hmm. can just feel that and there's something about that moment when she wakes up and she looks at him she says what are you doing here thinking that she's in her room (laughs) it's just incredibly sweet it was a nice moment for willow it's also Mm -hmm. sweet to see that interaction 
you know, because we see so much of Giles and Buffy. Right. It's so nice mm-hmm. to see how Giles approaches, you know, mm-hmm. someone who isn't super powered, someone exactly. who isn't, you know, mm-hmm. one girl in every generation. You know, mm-hmm. uh, it's nice to see that side of his character. Mm-hmm. And lovely, of course, as always, to see Alison Hannigan so effortlessly communicate these boundless volumes of vulnerability. I know. From Willow. Ah, God, it's great stuff. (laughs) Giles has found a description of the contents of the Dulac manuscript. It is a ritual to restore a weak vampire like, say, Drusilla. Perhaps. The kind of vampire that might be restored. Mm -hmm. Spike, meanwhile, reads the translation and tells Drusilla that they have it. She says, without apparently knowing the contents of the manuscript, that it was right in front of them the whole time and indicates a new tarot card. We'll talk a little about Drusilla's prophetic tendencies and what they mean <laughs> later in the show. Xander and Cordelia arrive at Buffy's house and investigate. They spar. There is sexual chemistry to spare. Yes. Xander officially names the Scooby Gang. Here we are, a season and a half in, and they have their name. Did he name the Scooby Gang? How did I miss that? No, that's, it's the first time that he uses Scooby Gang. Oh, yeah. my God. Um, <laughs> wow, I somehow missed that in that moment. No, this is this is a big moment for yeah. Xander. He names the Scooby Gang, spars mm-hmm. with Cordelia, and then breaks into Buffy's house. He's wow. having a big day. This is a big day for him. Uh, yeah. While Xander is upstairs, definitely not lurking in Buffy's bedroom, let's be clear. <laughs> he, is, he is like oh, a he's good over that 20 now. yards away from her underwear he's door. He's over that now. He just poked in through her closet think it has to make to sure she Buffy. wasn't hiding there. He's in a teenage girl's in a bedroom. teenage girl's bedroom. <laughs> it is a realm of mystery to yes, teenage Yes, her boys. underwear drawer exerts a strange magnetic the underwear fascination drawer. I think for Just Zander. like a girl's bedroom is kind of a weird place <laughs> for a boy. Yeah. Cordelia, meanwhile, answers the door to a genial and not at all creepy cosmetics salesman. Mm-hmm. After a moment of Angel struggling against the cage, we cut to Buffy, who is suddenly awoken by Kendra's sudden attack. They battle, they face off. Buffy demands to know who she is and gets her reply. Kendra, the vampire slayer. <gasps> dun, 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 dun. And we cut hard to credits. Right. We'll pick up our beat by beat in just a moment. Mm-hmm. That's the first episode yep. and that aired by itself. Mm-hmm. We decided to cover both parts of What's yes. My Line because this is one continuous story. Yes. But let's take a moment to reflect on how well the first part works as an episode of television. Yeah. Is there any kind of structural way in which it works as a single unit of story? No. No, because what we, what we, where we are, that midpoint, the midpoint in a story is that moment where everything gets recontextualized. Throughout this entire first uh, part, we have been presuming that Shiny Pants was the third of the three, was the leopard of the three uh, um, uh, assassins brought in by the Order of Taraka. So at this moment, this is when we realize that Kendra is something entirely different, and so we need to deal with her in a different way. And that is your classic midpoint, where something, a presumption that we've had throughout the first part of the story flips and then all of a sudden you've recontextualized yeah in in classic three-act structure Mm -hmm. this is the this is the middle of the second act Mm -hmm. this is the the hinge upon which the whole story turns right and i mean we've Um, opened this none of our storylines have been resolved the order of taraka has not been resolved the cordelia and xander thing has not been resolved where they're looking for buffy at her house they're left at her house i mean there's there are no resolved storylines now in a two-parter where you have the first part has has a story unto itself everything gets resolved except maybe one you you know one story that overlaps from one to the other then you've got a complete story in each of those two parters but this is a situation where we have just a story that's been cut in half yeah um and so while it is a complete episode of television in that it is 44 minutes long it is in no way a complete story the story yeah. doesn't complete until we have 
resolution of the storylines in that episode and we have not resolved the uh the career fair we haven't resolved any of this stuff so yeah it it it, it, i I was really racking my brain trying to think of a single story element that is resolved in that first episode and there's there's not a one i don't think there's anything yeah um Which, you know, isn't a problem now, mm-hmm. but part of the the burden that you carry as a, a writer and a producer of episodic television yeah. is, you know, the obligation to at least... Okay, let me reframe that, because no one is talking about modern television in that way. It's mm-hmm. entirely possible to, to, you know, in 2014, have a TV show that does this kind of thing. Mm-hmm. That, that's okay. But back in 1997... Yes. Episodic television was episodic, and Buffy was one of the first shows to break that mold. To move serial from episodic, and and I, we have we discussed that here the difference between episodic and serial. I think we did way back, okay. uh, in the early days of Just, Dusted. But for those of you who have joined us late, <laughs> right? Brief brief recap: um, episodic storytelling is a complete story in every episode, so that when you go from episode to episode, you have a complete experience, a complete story experience. Serialized stories are stories that continue on, that that gets kind of complete. They they never really resolve you may resolve a storyline um but like a soap opera or whatever it just keeps going and it becomes much more serialized now you can have a hybrid of that which is what buffy is where we have um we have a complete story that the season is trying to tell you know we have a big bad that that roams over the season and we sort of escalate that conflict in little bits and pieces throughout the episodes but each episode is still a complete story unto itself so this is kind of where storytelling has gone for the most part in television there's this hybrid hybrid um hybrid work and a lot and partly, of that is because of our ability to now record television to people glom it they stream right. it they watch it all at once and um, partly it's it's due to the critical and, yeah. and narrative success of buffy the vampire Slayer. of they, buffy buffy was one go, of the first ones to really do this successfully yeah. you can go back to shows like star trek deep space nine you can go back to shows like babylon five mm-hmm. to uh the x-files of yeah. course mm-hmm. there are examples of you know narrative primetime shows not soap opera soap operas have been doing this for you know 50 years now yeah but soap operas are a different animal though because they never have a complete episode and they have yes they an have episode no, of is just no 44 minutes it's just yeah. right exactly it's always grinding that right. story and we don't really resolve everything in one we don't have a complete unit of story within one of those 44 minutes whereas in episodic television you have a complete unit of story and in this hybrid serial we have a complete unit of story in every episode and you know an overarching story that we that we go throughout the season one of the reasons that i bring this up and one of the reasons that i think it's it's such a rich topic of discussion is that if this two-parter has a flaw it is its structure mm-hmm. because we have started all these balls rolling. We've got all of these mm-hmm. threads. None of them are resolved in the first half. Mm-hmm. And that leaves everything to be resolved in the second half. And the second half gets a little tangled because we're keeping so many balls in the air, as I mentioned, right. as I mentioned earlier mm-hmm. in the podcast. I believe, it, and, and had I been sitting in on an on a, on a editorial meeting for this script, mm-hmm. I believe it would have been a better idea to resolve the order of Tanaka storyline. Uh-huh. In the first. At the climax. Uh-huh. Yeah. Or take care of, of, of who we'll find out soon is, is you know, a policewoman. Yes. Uh, take mm-hmm. care of the third assassin. Right. Even take care of the bugs. You know, we can, we can kind of push that back into, mm-hmm. uh, we can push the climax of that encounter back into 
So resolve enough of it that we get a complete episode. We get a complete unit of story within this one episode. Make and then Kendra appear to be the last of the assassins. Mm-hmm. Uh, or even, you know what, have her be the third. And, right. and we think that she's the last, but it turns out that she isn't. So mm-hmm. you could hold the policewoman back even for, right. for the second mm-hmm. half of the episode. But have her appear to be the last assassin. Then that wham line at the end actually mm-hmm. does resolve the Order of Taraka story. Right. And we can move forward because now we're locked. Giles already knows the stakes that we're dealing mm-hmm. with, with uh, Spike and the Deluxe manuscript. So we mm-hmm. can move forward with purpose without the without the assassins worrying us. Because we spend yeah. a lot of we spend a lot of time on the back and forth with the assassins in the second half of the story. Yeah, I don't really have a problem with the structure of the story because I feel like once you push them together, the complete unit that they make is actually uh, you know fairly good. I think that it's. I, I don't know that I would necessarily want to resolve that because i think that what this story is all about is about this what's my line what am i going to do with my life what am i here what is my purpose you know right Um, but none of that thematic stuff is addressed by being hunted by assassins no no i mean fair enough but i also don't feel like the order of taraka is the main no it's not which is why i think it it would have just so that you can just so you can like clip some of those threads before yeah. you get into the second half yeah I can and see it that. also gives you a more complete story right. in the first half so you're not left completely hanging you know right the more threads with everything you unresolved yeah. that at least we resolve something sure um yeah, yeah fair enough i can see that let's push on part two yes. of what's my line previously on buffy the vampire slayer well look you can just rewind your podcast yes. you know what to do <laughs> buffy and kendra face off it's like two girls showing up at the same party wearing the same supernatural destiny <laughs> they agree though finally to go and talk with giles angel meanwhile is awaiting the coming dawn mm. we cut to credits when we come out we're in the library we learn that kendra's watcher is sam zabuto a watcher of whom giles has heard kendra is respectful to giles but dismissive of buffy and absolutely baffled by the notion that a slayer might have friends <laughs> giles puts two and two together when buffy died in prophecy girl kendra was chosen willow leaps to buffy's defense when kendra accuses her of kissing a vampire but we quickly explain Angel's whole deal, so that's neatly taken care of, mm-hmm. except, oh, where did Kendra leave him again? <laughs> I love that sequence. Buffy yes. would never do that, except, except you do that. she does that sometimes. <laughs> um, it was Angel, right? Yes. <laughs> A ton of really nice little characters. Great Willow stuff that. there, yeah. yeah, yeah. yeah. Mm-hmm. Uh, Willie appears at the cage and drags Angel out of the light, dumping him into a sewer tunnel. Relief, though, is short-lived, mm-hmm. because who else should be in the sewer? tunnel but spike spike <laughs> pays willie off and his vampire lackeys drag angel off into the sewer oh, and i love this this is such a great moment for spike when willie says well what are you going to do with him anyway and then spike says i'm thinking maybe dinner and a movie i don't want to rush into anything i've been hurt you know i yeah. love that says so much about spike and why everybody loves spike yeah it also speaks to Oh, God, I don't know. There's a, a, a richness to James Master's performance yeah. when he gets some of these lines. We talked back in, all the way back in Schoolheart, about mm-hmm. Spike's sense of theatricality. Yes. Um, but there's something there. there there's a, a venom. There's a, a bitterness. Mm-hmm. That, he, I don't know. As weird as the line is, yeah. you know, as, as lightly as it may be played, as, yeah. as, as insignificant as it may appear, 
I absolutely believe that Spike has been hurt by Angel. I absolutely believe <laughs> right. that this is... Well, there is a hint. I mean, they have obviously have a past together. Yeah. You know, there's that moment in, um, oh, was it School Hard when Angel and Xander come yeah. in? Yes. And, yeah. then, and then he goes, you Uncle Tom. And he starts yelling <laughs> at him. Um, and I feel like there has been, I mean, as we'll learn later, there's, there's you know, much history between Spike and Angel. But, um, and Spike is his sire. You know, or yeah. Angel is Spike's sire, as we learn in School Hard. By proxy, at least. Right. Yeah. So. Um, so, yeah, I don't know. I mean, I find it really, um, really kind of interesting how they they have this like deep relationship and this kind of anger and competitiveness and, and, and friendship underneath that, you know, and you can yeah. kind of see all of that. There's there's depth and, and like complexity in the way that James Marsters plays that role. It, it's a great performance. Mm-hmm. It's, it's yeah. a knockout performance. And it's so strange that as compelling and magnetic as he is in the big moments, right. it is sometimes those quieter moments mm-hmm. that give you the best sense of, of both who Spike is and what James Masters is capable yes. of. Um, really striking beat. Uh Meanwhile, back at Buffy's house, Cordelia is beating Bugman into submission with her her relentless optimism and her <laughs> ability to be multiple seasons, whatever that means. Uh, I don't understand cosmetic stuff. It's just like, it's a color palette. Is that what it's it is? It's a color palette. Okay. Yeah, All I am right. both a summer and a winter. Like you're either a winter or a summer. You either wear warm col- colors or you wear cool colors. And she's I believe both that a summer Cordelia and a can be everything. Yes. That, that seems entirely consistent with her character <laughs> as we understand it so far. Um, Xander returns just as Cordelia is becoming suspicious and they run immediately. Uh, Bug Guy dissolves into a million millipedes and forces them into the basement. The bugs crawl underneath the door. But this is just another terrifying supernatural problem solved by duct tape. I know. (laughs) I love that. I love that. The only thing that's sad is that he didn't have my my polka dot duct tape. Or your Hello Kitty duct tape. Or my Hello Kitty duct tape. I like having, you know, happy duct tape all over the place. It's a really nice beat for Xander, though, that it it is his down-to-earth practicality. It is his kind of mundane expertise (laughs) that saves them in this moment. It's pretty strong stuff. It is, it is. Uh, But it is also a beat that we could have arrived at at in the closing moments of the last episode and kind of tidied Mm -hmm. up that, that ongoing strand. Back at Willie's The Slayers... Get used to that plural, ladies and gentlemen. <laughs> Find the cage empty and devoid of vampire dust. They demand answers from Willie and satisfied leave. But not before being offered some lucrative modeling work. <laughs> Willie's pretty Just great, Just tasteful you guys. nude stuff. Willie's pretty great. There you go. <laughs> <laughs> Underground, Drusilla has been dreaming of Paris. Spike, though, has brought her a gift, a bound angel. All they need is the full moon and angel will die. Drusilla will be cured. Until the ritual, though, he's going to be Drusilla's plaything. Yeah. Back at Sunnydale High, we get a little Sorkin-style walk-and-talk as Giles <laughs> and Kendra bond. Buffy feels unappreciated. She didn't even get the handbook. At the same time, she's wondering about stepping down from her sacred duty mm-hmm. as Slayer. And this is really rich and interesting. I said earlier about the the unexpected perspectives that this episode gives us on this right. old conflict, this mm-hmm. this established conflict between Buffy's desire for a normal life and duty as and the slayer. And being the chosen one, right? The thing that I love most about this episode is that it gives us this perspective of of a certain defensiveness. That this situation with Kendra has forced Buffy to reconsider what being the slayer really means mm-hmm. and perhaps she is discovering that it's not all bad. Mm-hmm. Perhaps she's discovering that, that there's more to it and more to her than the girl with the you know unfortunate birth right well because when you have no choice like when you're stuck with being the slayer and that's it you can 
you can like not look at the things about it that you like because it's not a choice because you're stuck you know but when she has a situation there where like Kendra and Giles are bonding and that's her space I mean I think she's feeling a little possessive of that yeah. of that space that this was hers you know and now suddenly it's it's being sort of taken away from her in a sense the the specialness that she's had which she has always railed against but now she has to actually look at it and say you know what are the things about this that I appreciate and that yeah. I like um, and I really like that that instead of jumping up and down and being like woo I don't have to be the slayer anymore we see that <laughs> that in a way she you know she owns that space and she likes it you know yeah it, it's she a really... likes her role her sense of identity you get a huge you know identity sure. push off of that so. it's a really interesting and nuanced character moment it is really her. nice uh, and that thread is perhaps for me you know having watched the show before and I'm kind of familiar with its big movements yeah. uh, watching that little piece of of, of character development mm -hmm. is a really interesting well, one. Well, and she's and so stuck in between. She's like, at the, on the right. one hand, she would love to take a vacation, you know, and have Kendra just cover things for her, you know, but on the other hand, this is her space. This is her realm. It's also really interesting that in many ways, we don't want to look too far forward, but yes. it's fair to say, I think, that in many ways this conflict is going to be settled mm -hmm. by this episode. Yeah. You know, we're not going to have quite the same reliance on that conflict between duty and and you know right. life or mm -hmm. freedom or mm -hmm. you know boys yes. uh, we're going we're going to have less of that as we move on because part of what is happening Mm -hmm. in in the subtle characterization through this episode is that Buffy's kind of accepting she's resolving some her, of these issues role. not yeah. fully mm -hmm. you know yeah we've got a long way to go before that happens if mm -hmm. indeed it ever does. ever does right but but it it's certainly the focus shifts right. as we move on from mm -hmm. from this episode um in Buffy's basement, meanwhile, Xander and Cordelia are getting tense. They're trapped, and Xander's only plan is to wait for Buffy to save them. Cordelia wants to take action. They fight. They spark. They kiss. And the soundtrack suddenly forgets that this is a 90s network drama and goes into full-on golden age of Hollywood moment. <laughs> this is the rising strings, oh, the it's surge so of music. sweet. And that fast kiss. That's the thing they used to do in like the 30s yeah. where it's like, you're not kissing, you're kissing. It's just like, yes. it's like there's no slow move in. There's no like thoughtfulness. It's just boom, you know. Um, and it's really, really fun to it's, see them do that. It's brilliant. And, and it's crazy to think that we have come from the, this mutual antagonism yeah you know we've come through all the various cordelias that we got in the first season we've mm -hmm. arrived at a settled kind of character template for mm -hmm. her we have a sense of of her dynamic with xander and we've somehow managed to arc all the way mm -hmm. to the point that their kiss seems like the most natural thing in the world yeah. seems like the most inevitable thing in the world oh, this yeah. was always mm -hmm. going to happen. no this they've been building this up this chemistry between these two um at least all of this season if not into the first season there were yeah. a couple of times where the two of them would spar and you would just see it and i think what they did was they saw the chemistry between the actors and just ran with it i think so you too. know and it's it's really great after a beat they agree that they need to get out of here and they do so as they head for the door though worms cascade from the ceiling and cordelia is covered this by the way is someone's very specific fetish i'm ah. sure they burst outside she is screaming xander drenches her with the hose and sprays her gorgeous xander moment yes. sprays her for just a moment longer than is really necessary <laughs> just just a second and you can see there's a point where it feels like cordelia cracks and you see charisma like <laughs> enough now you know <laughs> <laughs> it's a really great moment. Uh, and they flee eventually uh -huh. to uh, 
to Cordelia's car, right. that, that same car that we've come to know and love so well. Absolutely. <laughs> In the halls of Sunnydale High, Oz and Willow talk. He tests well, but he isn't interested in computers as a career. He is pinning all his hopes for the future on that E-flat diminished ninth. Okay, oh, now you can play guitar. Chord. Did you know what he was talking about? Is I, that I a... do, and yes, it is. Can you play it? Nope. <laughs> <laughs> you really could lose a finger. Yeah. <laughs> I, I would struggle to play that chord under normal circumstances. Never mind, like, as, as part of a song. As part of I'm, a song. I'm actually performing, <laughs> right. yeah. Uh, Buffy, meanwhile, is at the law enforcement booth. The officer calls for attendance and attacks Buffy without provocation when she raises her hand. Buffy flees. The assassin shoots Oz in the arm while firing wildly into the crowd in a high school. As we've said before, the past is a different country. They do things differently there. Uh, Buffy disarms the assassin, who turns out to have another gun. Kandra, appearing from nowhere, takes care of that one. The assassin grabs Jonathan at knife point for just a moment. Then immediately discards him and runs for the exit. <laughs> Do we know he's Jonathan yet? No, he was named when he was buying the muffins for Cordelia. Yes. That's so right. We, so we've got This, him. I think, is his third appearance. Yeah. Um. No, he's fantastic. <laughs> Oz took a bullet while protecting Willow. This is clearly going to have romantic consequences. Yeah. If you take a bullet for a girl, you, ex- you at the That's very exactly. least expect a date. <laughs> In the library, the Scoobies assemble. Kendra is awkward around Xander. Cordelia runs off to shower. Giles has discovered that Spike needs Angel to cure Drusilla. And the ritual must take place in a church during the new moon. Except Spike said full moon earlier. Did he? And those are pretty much the opposite Wait, things. Wait, the full moon? Is yeah. Full moon or full moon? Because are those different? What is a fool? Is F-O-O-L. a full moon a thing? What, what would that okay, be? Okay, for some reason, I feel like the full moon is a... I'm <laughs> looking it up right now. I have no idea if that's a full thing. Full moon. Apparently, it's a thing. I'm looking it Researching up. live on the podcast. Oh, that's no, how that's what things. I'm associating. It's it's a, a um, Dresden Files book. Oh, okay. All right. <laughs> I was like, I thought that was a well, thing, but maybe not. There's your James Monsters connection right okay, there. Okay, wait. Somebody has a full moon calendar. <laughs> Dates 2014. <laughs> full... Okay, okay. It says full moon. All right. Anyway, I'm sorry. You so, may need to just edit that out because that was a whole... No, no, no. I, I, I think people bill. should see how the sausage is made. It's um, right. Nobody wants to see how the sausage is Spike made. Spike <laughs> definitely says full moon full earlier moon, in the right, scene okay. with Drusilla. Mm-hmm. Here it has transformed into the new moon. The and new it's moon. new moon consistently through the rest of the episode. I don't know at what point. I wonder if the earlier scene was shot as part of the block from the first episode. Perhaps there was a, a production break between the two. It's, it's, it's possible. Or just a script revision I, that someone missed. But just those like two something, things yeah. are opposites. I'm those afraid. are exactly... Um, so it's either tonight or it's in two weeks. <laughs> yes, exactly. Buffy and Kendra have very different priorities, but they can work together mm-hmm. for now. Drusilla, meanwhile, is torturing Angel with holy water and weirdness. There's just a and lot of weirdness. weirdness. No, but there's something so... Because, because we know. I mean, he told Buffy how he killed yeah. her family and just tortured her, you know? Um, and what I found really interesting about this sequence with Drusilla is that the, the understanding is, you know, that, that when a vampire takes over, you know, you, you're not you anymore. Yeah. You are simply the demon living in your body, right? But obviously, both Spike and Drusilla have very strong emotions connections drusilla obviously still has very strong emotional connections to the things that were done to her before she was turned into a vamp yes yeah, spike it's not at all clear it's not at all yeah. clear how much of 
Spike, Spike has is what consistent. Spike has is, is personality and, and this incredible like genuine love for Drusilla. Right. But Drusilla, you're right, is clearly exhibiting a certain continuity of awareness. Yeah. She's at, at a very profound an and, and broken that she level. Is, right. That she is she's pissed about what Angel did to right. her, you know? And and she's manifesting and exhibiting a, a pre vampiric emotional right. bond, mm-hmm. which is the first time that we've seen that happen. Right. There's no there's no real account for for Spike and Angel or for you know mm-hmm. Angel's other emotional connections. Um, we've seen vampires have mm-hmm. bonds to a right. greater or lesser extent, mm-hmm. uh, particularly with Darla in the mm-hmm. first season, mm-hmm. and obviously between Spike and Angel. Right. But yes, Drusilla's exhibiting something else. It's and, an interesting you know bit of world building. Let's there. let's mm-hmm. hold off on that because I want to talk about Drusilla in totality at the end of the at episode. At the spoiler section, yeah, there mm-hmm. are some things to to say about about Drusilla. Back in the library, we learn that there are forty three churches in Sunnydale. Mm-hmm. Yep, seems That's consistent, right. and I like the explanation <laughs> that Willow gives for that. Everyone is researching except uh, for Buffy, who is sharpening blades, mm-hmm. and Kendra, who is slaying lamps. Xander finds the Bugman in the book. There is still tension between he and Cordelia. Kendra meanwhile is spinning the story of her youth of being given up by her family it's kind of tough to buy the idea that that was a huge sacrifice for them let's just knock this out right now Kendra's terrible oh isn't Kendra terrible I mean I'm sure the actress is lovely um but between a particularly flat affect mm-hmm. and that and the weirdest accent. accent. What is that accent? The accent is go. It's going for Jamaican. Okay, because I thought it was Irish. It's a million miles away from Irish. Well, because <laughs> I, I don't, there's there's an element of Irish in in some of the pronunciations that she. I'm, uh, yeah, I'm not sure that there isn't. I'm not sure yeah. that, that that there's not a certain you know vowel sound overlap yeah. there. But to me, it it sounds you know. Uh, clearly and strongly Jamaican. Uh-huh. It is also, I know from a little background reading, it was a last minute choice. And the actress uh-huh. who plays Kendra to this day believes that the accent was a mistake. Oh, that is okay. not her natural Fair accent. To her. And, and she yeah. didn't rehearse with it, which yeah. may explain why it comes it's off It's such as a tough, and if she's, so if she's struggling with that accent, it can kind of explain why she doesn't have as much energy to sort of put into the rest of that performance, it does feel a right. little bit flat. Yeah, there's basically no energy in yeah. the rest of the performance. Mm-hmm. It's it's really tough. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's it's really tough, too, for someone to come in and play the by-the-numbers version of Buffy. You know, the thing right, that we love right, about right, Buffy right. is yeah. her rebellious spirit, is her iconoclasm, is her, you know, improvisational nature. Mm-hmm. Um, it's hard to come in and play the the straight arrow version of Buffy. But basically none of the choices made by either, you know, the writers, the director or the actress Mm -hmm. help that. Yeah. Well, Um, and this whole thing, too, this whole story about her um, when she was little, given to her watcher, obviously not hasn't been called as the slayer yet but knows that that is a potential thing for her this is our first kind of inclination yes that i mean we still don't have a strong sense of of who the watchers are who Uh, yeah we don't have a but obviously there's more than one even though there's there's, only one slayer right so Um, yeah i mean do they choose girls who have potential talent and just kind of train them in case they get called how do they know who's going to get called there's clearly some kind kind of of batting roster is there a, i don't know like 
what yeah, is you, it? You make the team. They have a bracket, like sure, a, sure. a like a uh, yeah. Sweet no, there's 16. clearly some kind mm-hmm. of supernatural indication that a girl is a potential slayer. Yeah. Um, it we have clear textual evidence now that the Watchers, mm-hmm. or at least some Watchers, train those girls in advance of their calling. Right. It's interesting that no one trained Buffy or contacted Buffy right. or was aware. A heads of up Buffy. might have been nice, right? Which would suggest <laughs> right. that. No matter how many potential slayers the Watchers are keeping an eye on, yeah. there are still others. They don't out know there. which ones will be called, and also that she says it's very important to my people that her people, like as a community, right? We have no clue who I don't know who her people are, right? But um, but understand that this is uh, you know, that this is a calling, that this is a sacred duty. Um, she has read all of the handbooks. She's been studying this stuff for years. She knows all of it. Um, how much would it suck yeah. if there are a large number of potentials out there mm-hmm. and Kendra was just never called? Yeah. Um, it's, it's the, the world building here is a little messy. We're certainly, we wanted to do right. this story. So we're dialing back some of the stuff that we got earlier. Mm-hmm. I think we're kind of reframing the role of the Watcher. We're reframing the support system yeah. because it becomes inconceivable at this point. That if there are other watchers out there, mm-hmm. if they're keeping track of potentials, if they have this kind of organizational structure, mm-hmm. which hasn't been clear in the past, right. but is now, you know, clearly implied. Right. If that exists, doesn't it become inconceivable that no one knows that Buffy died? No one warned Giles that another Slayer had been activated? Giles that... didn't make a phone call be like, hey, heads Has up. Has no one had a conversation here? Right. No, it is. It's a little bit weird. It's it's muddy world building because if you look at it, it doesn't really make any sense. Yeah. And we're going to retcon some There's more gonna details be some of, that, yeah. of Buffy's mm-hmm. origin. Not in a major way, but we're going to kind of reframe some right. of the stuff that we've already had mm-hmm. uh, as, we, as we move on. When Buffy's talking about the handbook earlier, mm-hmm. do you think that's the book that giles gives her in the pilot is that the vampire book oh maybe that he gives her in the in the pilot and she was like no i don't need that and so he's like because he he tells her that you know i pretty much figured the handbook wasn't going to be a thing for you so that may very well be that was his attempt to like you know i I think that's my personal canon okay for for the series now uh because i think you know it's so nice when she goes into the library in the pilot and he says Mm -hmm. oh i have exactly what you're looking for right Mm -hmm. (laughs) it'd be a nice moment if that were the the right guide to being a slayer in Mm -hmm. the 21st or the 20th century (laughs) that's what it was back then the thrust of this scene though is to point out that kendra has technique and kendra has training but buffy has imagination and spirit Also anger. Also like a lot lot of anger anger. at at, at this point. Underground, Angel taunts Spike about his history with Drusilla. Spike is about to stake him, but Drusilla at least has her eye on the prize. Spike stays his hand. Angel is going to suffer really great work between all three of them. No, it's it's nicely done. it's so great to see angel kind of break out of that you know mm-hmm. brooding and lurking and, and right. lurking and brooding and, mm-hmm. you know, disappearing into the shadow <laughs> give him something right. to do and he can really do something and he does with it really it. well like i say david boreanaz really delivers when he's given something to deliver he really does yeah buffy and kendra get the information they need from willie but before they can rush off to rescue angel they have a difference of opinion Willie leads Buffy to the church, where she is surrounded by vampires and the remaining assassins of the Order of Taraka. She has fallen into the world's most obvious trap. Inside the church, Spike and Drusilla perform the restorative ceremony. Spike pierces their bound hands with a blade and sets them to simmer. 
Willie shows up with Buffy and her guards. Spike taunts her, then calls on the cop assassin to do the long-awaited deed. But Kendra attacks. Buffy is freed. Giles appears with a crossbow in hand, and a full-fledged fight breaks out. <laughs> Xander and Cordelia squish worms into glue goo. Also, someone's very specific fetish. <laughs> Willow dusts her first ever vampire. Kendra kills the last remaining assassin. And Spike cuts Drusilla down and begins to flee. But Buffy sets a new all-time series record for camp by hitting him in the head with an, inc an incense <laughs> thurible <laughs> and sending him into the pipe organ which descends upon him and yes. Drusilla. A real, mo a, a tonal shift, it yes. is fair to say, in the closing <laughs> moments of this episode. Uh, Kendra and Buffy rescue Angel. We'll talk a little about the consequences right. of, of this whole thing in just a moment. Mm -hmm. Kendra and Buffy rescue Angel and lead him out of the church as flames consume everything in sight. Another building burnt to the ground by Buffy Summers. That's right. <laughs> Back at school, Willow and Oz talk about animal crackers. Xander and Cordelia talk about kissing, then kiss some more. Mm -hmm. Buffy and Kendra talk about Kendra leaving and about slaying both as a job and as an identity. In the wreckage of the church, meanwhile, a newly powerful Drusilla hoists Spike off the ground and promises to make him strong again. Aww. A great turning point right yeah. there at the end of the episode. A great reframing of the conflict that's driven the first half of the season mm -hmm. and a great foreshadowing of things to come. It was one thing to leverage Drusilla's insanity mm -hmm. when she was weak, when she was enfeebled, when she was inconsequential. Quite right. another to do so now that she is, well, preposterously strong. Because regular say. crazy Drew is bad enough. Yeah. Strong crazy Drew is is dangerous. With Spike to avenge. Yeah. Yeah. Mm -hmm. yeah there's there's a lot there. Let's let's take this opportunity to talk directly about Drusilla. Um because she is unlike any other vampire that we've seen in, in Buffy the Vampire Slayer mm -hmm. so far. Yeah. One of the most striking things to me in this episode uh, was the exhibition of her prophetic abilities. Mm -hmm. She pulls the tarot cards that, that foreshadow the arrival of the Order of Tanaka. Right. Uh, of Taraka, excuse mm -hmm. me. She uh, has a sense right off the bat before Spike tells her the mm -hmm. solution to her condition, the cure for her condition. Right. She seems to intuit it directly. Well, yeah, she has that tarot card that has an angel on it. Right. It was in front of us the whole time. Mm -hmm. um, what is the connection from, from your understanding of the show, from your, from your reading of this text? What is the connection between Drusilla's insanity and her powers or between her powers and her vampirism? I have always I have always kind of had the impression that with Drusilla, um, she was, you know, a normal girl and then was driven insane. And then something in that allowed her to kind of access this ability to, to you know, have sight of some sort, yeah. you know, have some yeah. kind of sixth sense. And then being made into a vampire, you know, gives a girl to 300 years to kind of build up those skills, you know. Um, so and I feel to, like, to circle in her own insanity. Right. Too, well, I feel know? like the insanity prevents her or, or, you know, releases her from this, you know, uh, this this responsibility we all take to double check ourselves and to check ourselves against reality and all that she lives in a space that is not necessarily tethered 
to reality. And so in that way, she has the ability of, of distance and the ability to kind of see some things more clearly um, yeah. than those of us who, you know, regularly check ourselves in our, our mental <laughs> mental capacities so um so i've always kind of had that impression um of drusilla that's sort of been my head canon of her um yeah the, because she is broken mm-hmm. she can see things that that, that other the people same can't that, that right yeah. mm-hmm. and that certainly connects thematically with the idea of magic and corruption in the mm-hmm. buffy verse i think that kind of and also of purpose i mean when, in in what's my line we're talking about what your identity is who are you what is it that you do and mm. i think that this is part of what drusilla does right though in that sense, she actually has two distinct personas. You know, mm-hmm. th- there are two sides to Drusilla, mm-hmm. and th- the vampire side and the I don't know, you know, for want of a better word, the insane side. Right. Mm-hmm. And I think it's pretty clearly stated by the concluding moments of this episode that it's actually the insane side that we need to worry about. Yes, exactly. That Buffy's dealt with vampires. That that Drusilla isn't more powerful than other vampires in the same way that the Master was more powerful exactly. than other vampires. She's she's not more just dangerous ancient. because she's not only undead but she's undead and crazy but she also draws power from that insanity from her insanity absolutely which kind of implies a connection between vampires draw their power Mm -hmm. from their demonic essence that this is you know buffy cannon right that demonic essence we've been told you know to date Mm -hmm. (laughs) is inherently and absolutely evil Mm -hmm. that it is you know corrupted it does seem interesting that we're kind of looking at Drew's shattered psyche mm-hmm. in much the same way. That that there there's something there that is more dangerous than evil. Mm-hmm. And that leads me back to the whole idea, that this kind of constant back and forth in Buffy, that demons are evil, so they do evil things. Yes. Humans are not necessarily evil, which makes their evils worse. Because they can choose. Right. Because humans have a choice, whereas demons are just demonic. So if we're looking at this continuity of, of personality, which Drusilla clearly demonstrates, you yes. know, she clearly has a very personal vendetta against Angel mm-hmm. for things that were done to her and her family before she became a vampire. Yes. Because she has that continuity of personality, she, it seems to me, is also manifesting part of that human evil, that, yeah. that kind of greater evil. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's a really interesting thematic direction for, for Buffy to pivot mm-hmm. at this point. Um, to, to, to reframe the conflict in terms of something, you know, <laughs> uh, within the form of Drusilla, something that is not just a vampire. Right. Something that is, is, is worse. Well, she's, yeah, but I mean, what Drusilla has that none of the other vampires have is that personal relationship, that personal connection. And that makes her more dangerous well, specifically to Buffy Spike and Angel. It. Well, Spike has that personal connection with Angel. You know, they have like a history. But Drusilla has, she represents something that Buffy is, has been struggling with. That first episode where she saw Drusilla and she dressed up as, you know, the the lady from the 1800s so yeah. that it would, you know, would be familiar to Angel, the kind of girl that he likes, you know. But it's not just that, I mean, Drusilla is not just a vampire, but she is like Angel's ex. She is, you know, Angel, Angel sired her. There is a very personal 
personal relationship between the two of them, which makes her personal to Buffy. And she has the ability not just to hurt Buffy physically, but emotionally as well. That yeah. she there's an emotional vulnerable stake in the relationship with Drusilla that isn't oh, sure, there sure. with the other uh, no, vampires. That's absolutely true. Yes, and certainly the conflict is reframed in those terms mm-hmm. too. Yeah, we're really we're really building the pressure here. Yeah, um, and and it sets forth. I think even without knowing where the show is going from here, mm-hmm. <laughs> there's basically no way out but through right. at this point. Things mm-hmm. are going to get bad and it's going to happen quickly uh, in more than one sense. Next week on Dusted, Ted. Uh, <laughs> let's keep pushing on. There are some other things that I wanted to discuss. One of the most interesting little throwaway details, a little inconsequential moment that actually has some impact on our understanding of Buffy's life mm-hmm is the moment right at the beginning of the first part where she is in her bedroom with Angel and he finds the cute little picture of her in her skates. Yeah. And she says how much she loved skating, Mm -hmm. that Dorothy Hamill was her her heroine. uh, And that she used skating as a means of escaping her parents' Mm -hmm. fighting. Now, I did some research on this. Dorothy Hamill retired from competition in 1978, Mm -hmm. three years before Buffy was born. (laughs) She retired from the ice capades when she was most famous in 1984 when Buffy was three. Mm -hmm. Buffy is a little girl in the photograph. I would say maybe, I don't, what do you think? Oh, seven, eight. eight, Yeah, yeah. something Mm -hmm. something around that. It is now a matter of canon Mm -hmm. that Buffy's parents fought all the time when she was little. Yeah. Isn't that? Contrary to what we've been told before, that Buffy's childhood was basically a happy, joyous one. Well, in Nightmares, when she sees her dad, her fear is that he left because of her. And if her parents had been fighting the whole time when she was growing up, uh, um, I think that she would probably be a little more secure that it wasn't about her and her sudden slayer abilities that drove her parents apart. That's true i guess i hadn't i hadn't thought of nightmares but you're entirely mm-hmm. right because i i guess we could kind of recontextualize recontextualize that line to mean that it's less kind of her slayer identity and you know the burning down of the gym or whatever yeah. <laughs> that mm-hmm. led to their breakup and more you know i think the fear that every child of right. divorced parents but that's has her that direct fear i mean for. textual fear as stated in nightmares was that she started to get in trouble and that's why her father left because she yeah. was just too much to deal with once she got her slayer abilities and started you know getting no, into, no, into fights right. and getting into trouble so uh so uh, you know i find that kind of interesting in what it what it tells us about about Buffy's experience and about what her family life was like. Well, I think you can kind of account for it. Mm-hmm. Um, it is. It does seem clear from from this episode that she's not talking about an occasional argument. She's talking yeah. about you know a pattern of behavior. You can theorize, I guess, about you know that 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 Joyce and Hank went into some kind of marriage counseling mm-hmm. when Buffy was ten. Yeah, and everything was great from that point on until she was called as the Slayer and started Entirely burning down school possible. property. Not likely. Um, <laughs> no, 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 I think you're right. <laughs> Not if you're looking at how marriages actually work. Yeah, but, it, it um... is a weird one. Mm-hmm. Um, particularly because. Buffy's, you know, innocent, idyllic childhood mm-hmm. isn't a throwaway detail of backstory. It's yeah. fairly fundamental mm-hmm. to this ongoing conflict between to the life that she should have had. stark line yeah. between the life that she had and the life that, that she got. This you idea know? that Buffy would, in any other universe, basically be Cordelia. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, and she's been pulled out of that life. Mm-hmm. If you make Buffy's childhood unhappy, mm-hmm. I think you dilute... A lot of a lot of that potential conflict and a lot of that 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 richness of character yeah. that comes from that conflict, mm-hmm. you know, that the 
the way in which Buffy is now caught between two worlds, that is strengthened if those worlds are polar opposites. That one is peace and happiness and mm-hmm. joy and right. love and the other is you know conflict and blood and death well but i mean also it's it's if that's the case where her childhood was completely happy and idyllic and her parents always got along and then it was because she was getting in trouble that her father left um then that puts a lot of pressure on her her slayer life as well and also i mean says like really really bad things about her dad yeah. <laughs> you know if that's what's going to cause him to leave his wife and daughter that they weren't perfect enough yeah um you know i find that that really an interesting kind of thing to talk about her dad and also could explain a lot about her taste in men which uh which is a whole other thing um, it could do that it, it could, could do, do that, that. Yeah, no i think there's, there's a lot of interesting like psychological space to be mined in there but it is kind of contradictory speaking of interesting psychological space yes. what is it do you think about both the career aptitude test and Giles's opinion of mm-hmm. Buffy that makes her well suited for law enforcement work, <laughs> because that seemed like that seemed like a poor match. A poor match for Buffy. Well, I mean, she's kind of in law enforcement. I mean, she deals out justice on a daily basis. She you know? does, but we're looking at someone who does so in an inconsistent and and fairly arbitrary fashion. Well, <laughs> she's a rogue cop. I mean, she, she's, she's not going to fit into a system where you have rules and laws, and you know you have right. to abide exactly. by the, think, abide by the cop handbook. I mean, yeah, she would be the the rogue cop going out on her own and getting into trouble all the but time. But I think the aptitude test that you mm-hmm. hand out to high schoolers probably doesn't have an allowance for rogue cop who plays by his own rules. Probably not. Know? Probably Who's got twenty four hours to solve well, the case? What, what what line of work would you expect based on what Buffy's answers would be? This what is what I wanted. To, to this is what I wanted to discuss. How do we feel about? Let, let's kind of frame this with the others. Let's see if there's any kind of legitimacy mm-hmm. in this whole endeavor. Um, Cordelia gets personal shopper and motivational speaker. Mm-hmm. That seems like a pretty good match. Yeah. We buy the idea that Willow could be recruited by you know the world's greatest software company. Sure. Mm-hmm. Um, and 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 basically be recruited either by Bill Gates or Steve Jobs. You yes. Know, in, mm-hmm. in 1997 take your pick there um xander as a prison guard see the joke there is i think that we're supposed to see prison guard as like a low class menial kind of right but prison guard i see is not terribly i mean it's it's law enforcement i mean it's you know it's basically the same thing that buffy gets you know and yet it's treated within the text of the episode very differently. Yeah. Mm-hmm. It's, it's mm-hmm. clearly not something that you would be proud of. Right, know, to right. Be to be a prison guard. guard absolutely. Um, and yet I'm not sure that it doesn't speak to Xander's sense of justice, mm-hmm. Xander's strong sense of, of right and wrong. Even mm-hmm. He clearly understands, you know, that there is a line. Right. Um, he's not, he's not resistant to the idea of service. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I could see it. It it seems a little mean spirited, right? Know, it seems like the joke is maybe worth a little more than than the real, you know, mm-hmm. meditation on Xander's character. But right. it, it works well enough. Mm-hmm. What then do we make of this this uh, categorization for Buffy? What what would you see? It it's so strange to come into this episode that is all about vocation. That mm-hmm. is all about you know, and I I understand that we're we're putting the primary focus not on being a slayer versus being a, you know, I don't know, vet or, right. or, or a ballet mm-hmm. dancer mm-hmm. or whatever it is that Buffy wants to be. It's not about, you know, which one does she get to choose? It's mm-hmm. about the fact that she doesn't get to choose. Right. Mm-hmm. So it's interesting that we're putting that pressure on it, but it would be interesting if the aptitude test gave us something that she hadn't considered, but was perhaps open w- would to. Would be something that if Buffy were not the slayer, 
you know, because yeah. one of the things that we always come back to is if she wasn't the Slayer, she'd be Cordelia, right? You know, she would essentially be that character. So that you would At see least that's her what the in, movie tells us. Yeah. right? But yeah, but I think that we get a, a fairly clear sense of that in the opening episode, um, in the pilot when yeah. she and Cordelia meet, they bond. She passes the test. Um, she's all but in, you know. But we undermine that with some other details of Buffy's backstory as we mm-hmm. move on. We undermine that when Ford shows up, and right. we learn that she was already kind of kooky and mm-hmm. kind of on the outside skirts you yeah. know mm-hmm. uh back in la they kind of they, they dial that down but yeah i think that's certainly mm-hmm. the initial conception of this of the of the relationship between buffy and cordelia was that they're they're you know mirrors for one another right um, mm-hmm. and we'll certainly see cordelia move much more toward where buffy is mm-hmm. than vice versa um but it would be interesting to see, maybe that would be the thing you know maybe just give buffy some some kind of really girly girl job, you know, a fashion right. designer or a personal shopper, a motivational mm-hmm. speaker, you know, uh, give her something that. But I think what she's actually, you know, what really works for her and why she is such a good slayer is because she has this sense of right and wrong. She has this sense of justice um, that when they picked law enforcement for her, I mean, I think that it it spoke to something that she is. She is good at. She doesn't like it because um, because it is such an onerous responsibility to be the chosen one, yeah. you know? But I think that there is an element of uh, the physical element of the job, the um, her ability to, you know, beat the hell out of anybody, you know, her kung fu mastery, all of this kind of stuff that I think, you know, speaks to a part of her that would do well in law enforcement, in, in enforcing the right and the wrong and finding justice. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, so I think that, you know, that something like that, something like being, uh, you know, law Which enforcement would work for her. Speaks very highly of Buffy's yeah. character, if yeah. that's if that's the case. It's, she it's just doesn't want to be a cop now. She doesn't want to be a <laughs> demon cop. She also wants to be, you know, wants to have a job that she can tell people about. People can understand, you know. Um, there are a lot of things I think that she's understandably, you know, resentful of in her Slayer lifestyle. Let's talk a little about the, symbolism of the big ritual of, mm-hmm. of the cure actually before we get to that one one quick throwaway thing when uh giles is filling in kendra on some of buffy's history mm-hmm. uh, kendra accuses buffy of, of being a cheerleader mm-hmm. at the school and giles says that not anymore it's quite an amusing story actually yeah. so he's referring to the events of which yes as quite an amusing story <laughs> Well, you know, it's like everything. At the moment, yes, it's very serious. When you look back, you're like, no, those are good times. Do you ever look at her eyes? Do you ever Comedy look at her eyes? Comedy tragedy plus can- time. Yeah. Exactly. No, absolutely. Absolutely. Wonderful stuff. All right, so let's talk about the, let's talk about the ritual. Let's talk about the big okay. set piece that mm-hmm. concludes. I mean, obviously, we're dealing with a ton of Christian imagery. Right. It struck me as odd. And, and I think there are ways of, of, you know, textually kind of massaging this so it's not like a real problem. So we're right. not having to revise our understanding. We remember in the first episode of the second season when the anointed's uh, lackeys were digging for the bones of the master. Mm-hmm. And because they were digging in consecrated ground, there were their hands were burning and, and terrible things were happening. By the time we get to this episode, though. Spike and Drusilla are comfortably hanging out in a church. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Spike is handling a cross just all the live long day. Yes. Uh, she doesn't well, he's see- got gloves on, though. I mean... Well, is that the limit of... I think it's the physical contact so with the So the anointed cross. didn't even pause to get his vampire lackey's gloves when they were digging for the bones of the master. It's, <laughs> it's a $2 okay, pair of the gloves anointed from is the general a- dollar yes, down exactly. the road. <laughs> <laughs> just gloves. Just gloves, yeah. It, it was interesting to see that along with 
angel in the uh, in the cage. Mm -hmm. And the idea that, you know, he was clearly going to die right. because the sunlight was going to hit him. But more than that, he's still in shadow when Willie drags him from the cage. Mm -hmm. And yet he's clearly visibly weakened by the experience. By the, the closeness of the sunlight. Yeah. yeah. Whereas in the past, we've had really sharp demarcations between mm -hmm. what is in sunlight and what is not. Right. And mm -hmm. if vampires are not in sunlight, they seem to be completely fine. Yeah. So I'm not quite... This episode seems to be either refocusing our sense of you know, what is dangerous to a vampire, mm -hmm. shifting our understanding of those rules just incrementally, or it just doesn't have a very good sense of what those rules are. I think that there's some world building that if, if Angel is in a cage and the light has not affected him at all, then we're not going to worry about him. So I think this is more of a narrative concern. This is a, 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 a tension that they're wanting to build in this episode. And so they changed their world a little bit for that, for the sake of that. Because we've seen Angel you know, a million times, like in a shaft of shadow, you know, and he's fine. And it's no problem until he gets indirect sunlight. Inside the mausoleum back in the first yeah, season. Absolutely. When there's mm -hmm. bright sunlight cascading into the room. And because he's not directly right. standing in its path, he seems. I mean, there's, you know, there's fine. also the possibility that because he was locked in there all night, he was not able to get his daily dose of pig's blood. Uh, so he this could is be what I'm starving. Can, he could be yeah. the vampire form of dehydrated. You can certainly do some textual yeah. work around it. It's but, possible that this church is no longer in common use it's possible that that right it's a it's... but just but just being in the church but i mean like one of the things that the master complained about is that sacred ground that he was underneath yeah. a church you know um and that was a problem for him just being in that space he was horrified by the space that he was in because it was sacred holy ground um but this church is yet not in use and maybe there is some power in people regularly you know coming to worship and and sort of recharging the battery that that is the church that is a Which possibility is, that is an interesting possibility because that has been explored in vampire mm -hmm. lore right. down through the ages that mm -hmm. it is not the cross or the church that is powerful it's the belief that underpins that it. powers that right and mm -hmm. it's possible that since you know the the deluxe cross since mm -hmm. that uh that little MacGuffin. It, it's never yes. clear exactly how that is used to decode the manuscript. No, because the thing is, he pulls the knife. That he's, <laughs> so the knife is in the thing, but how it allows him to decode the manuscript, I have, unless there's like stuff that's scratched in, there's like engravings in the in Or the, the code in the book just says, use the knife that comes with your cross. Use the knife that comes with your cross and dial 1-800-DEAD-VAMPIRE if you have any problems for troubleshooting. But wait, that's not all. No, I can absolutely see a late night commercial where Dalton is selling yes, that knife. Exactly. It can cut through a tomato, it can cut through a tin can, it can cut through a shoe. Order now. Get a free cross of the luck. Um, <laughs> <laughs> so it's interesting to see those those elements being mm -hmm. reframed for all that as much as it kind right. of offends the, mm -hmm. the inner nerd. Yes. Uh, God, it's tough not to be impressed by the symbolism mm -hmm. of of Drew and Angel bound together, the, the knife being yeah. driven through their conjoined hands, mm -hmm. the, the intensity of that. It's a really punchy. Yeah. It's a really punchy image. It's a really grand moment. It's a mm -hmm. moment of of kind of operatic evil. Right. Uh, Buffy doesn't often get to ascend to those heights outside mm -hmm. of you know season finales. Right. Uh, really great to see the intensity and and the weight that's given to that. What do you make of the 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 thurible? What do you make of the the little <laughs> the of, camp moment where she hits? First of all, 
I am very impressed by the fact that you knew what the actual like technical name. I was like incense burner. <laughs> you know what is it called? A thurible? Oh, I think it's a thurible. Yes. I, I have no. I've is never it not heard a the thurible. Word? You're making me feel very self conscious. No, no. I should be self conscious. I'm the one. Listeners, who know get the in word. touch and let us know. I'm like you know the the incense burner, the like thing you know that they carry around in church. I have absolutely no idea, but I think it's awesome that you just had that word on the tip of your tongue. I find that incredibly sexy. Um, but yeah, when she when she swings it and throws it at Spike and hits him in the back of the head and he falls into the organ and then all the pipes like descend down on them um it is kind of a camp moment i mean it is sort of like you know but it also shows that buffy you know as she kills the the demon bounty hunter with the blade of her ice skate you know she also uses what's available grabs the the thurible if you will um and smacks him in the head i kind of liked it i kind of liked what it said about her being scrappy and you know taking what is available and using it and i mean yeah she swings it kind of in a like a much more violent way than like the priests actually do when they're in latin mass and they just sort of gently swing it back and forth you know <laughs> and it spreads the incense and everybody's happy and we say a little latin and life is good but you know swings it and then throws it and hits him in the head i loved it i See, thought it was great that's one of the beats that i think you could have done trivially to make mm-hmm. it just a little punchier and a little less camp because mm-hmm. uh, it does seem implausible that Spike, you know, super-powered vampire Spike would be brought no, low the by... the thurible is a symbol of... It's a <sighs> holy symbol. I mean, if it hits him, it's going to have more power because it has that holy symbolism That's in it. not what it is. It's just occurred to me. I know what it is. What is it? It hit him on the back of the head. Oh, We know that, that vampires spot. are sensitive... On in the, the back backs of their, of their well, heads. Well, and so is Giles. Established yes, exactly. as, as canonical way back in the movie. <laughs> <From> the movie. <laughs> <laughs> no, there are a couple yeah. of ways of doing it. Yeah, one would be, you know, heighten the, the, the Thurible's presence as a religious artifact. That yeah. could, we could have done that with a line or, mm-hmm. or, you know, even a gesture from Spike right. could have accounted for that. The other, have it be on fire. <laughs> have it be ablaze. Right. Have mm-hmm. that kind of, you know, Okay, be a would point. a flaming incense burner be less camp than just an incense burner? I think I think less camp in the sense In the sense that you could super camp, you could but... believe that it, I I liked it. I think it's okay. It doesn't bother me as being terribly camp. I I do, you know, I do see the campy element to it. Um but I like what it said about and what it reinforced about Buffy's ability to take to use what she has. Sure. No, you know, it, it absolutely reflects that. Yeah. Yeah. It, it's it's <laughs> I think I would have a bigger problem with it if it weren't so charming and, and genuinely funny. Yes. The, the, the time, the way that Spike just drops firstly. <laughs> Spike does kind of bounce a little bit between this like really like dangerous, frightful character to this almost silly caricature yeah. you know i mean he he bounces around a lot in that space and i, I actually quite like it but um it it you need to walk a fine line when you, his... those tonal shifts are always right. going to grind the gears somewhat. the fact that you can take this little tin thing and like smack yeah. him in the back of the head with it and that's what takes him out yeah. you know <laughs> <laughs> it kind of undercuts a little bit the danger that you get from spike right. but at the same time it humanizes him in an odd way since he's a vampire uh but there is the the those little moments that humanize Spike that overall I, I, I love that are my favorite moments with I him. I can't help but feel there is a punchier way of doing that ending. Mm-hmm. It, it feels a little, and, and I know that we need to do it structurally because we need to not be thinking about, or, or right. <laughs> let me rephrase that. Buffy needs to not be thinking about Spike and Drusilla for the next couple of episodes. Right. We need to let that plot mm-hmm. lay fallow for a little while so that it can build up again. Um, 
so she has to believe at least that the problem's been taken care of. Right. But mm-hmm. I kind of wish there'd been another way out. I kind of wish there'd been another. Well, and the church is on fire, yeah. which is also a bad thing for vampires. So if you knock them out, you put them underneath an organ and then the church is ablaze and you have to get out. Sure. You know, I mean, I guess her presumption well, would be that's that, part of it, though, yeah. right? Is that Drusilla rescues Spike after the fact. The right. fire has apparently already gone out. They're well, already... the organ was flame retardant. <laughs> Sure. So oddly enough, the organ actually protected them from the fire. But had Drusilla rescued Spike in the heat of the moment, literally, as, yes. as the church was burning to the ground around them, right. Buffy didn't have to see it. You know, right. we could have we could have still had our cake and eaten it too. But seen Drusilla would be that have awesome been more powerful, moment, right? And mm-hmm. also understood that if not for her, they would both be dead, right? Mm-hmm. You know, true, um, true. If it's if it's in the process of burning, if they yeah. would have died, and it's reasonable for Buffy to presume that they died. Um, but we see, you know, Drusilla carrying Spike out. Yeah, I think that could have been, you know, possibly a little bit more powerful, but I actually quite like it the way that it ended up. I felt like it was pretty strong. It it, it works. Yeah. Broadly, it works. I, mm-hmm. I still kind of cringe a little bit, particularly when Buffy's doing the wind up with, yeah. the, with oh. the, the thurible there. But, but I love it. <laughs> All right. Let's have one quick throwaway, uh, one quick throwaway moment of speculation yes. before we get to our list of every Buffy episode I ever. Know. How is Kendrick getting out of the country? She's being packed off in a taxi to the airport. You would presume she didn't bring her passport. We know okay, for a fact a, she, she's not carrying a bag or any luggage at all. Right. She had to borrow she's a shirt. She's borrowing a from shirt. <laughs> you ripped me what shirt. What is going to happen when she gets shirt. to the airport? It's me only shirt. Okay, did you make him say me? It's me only shirt. Like that's no, a, that's Mario. That's, an yeah, Irish. Yeah. No, it's, it's part of that an Mario. Irish construction. Oh, that's a my know. only shirt. <laughs> Anyway. Anyway, so she's she's she has no <laughs> luggage. She has they bought her a ticket, but she has no, I'm assuming, no. identification of any kind or a passport or whatever. Um, it is possible that she will be, you know, stuck in customs at the airport. <laughs> but I mean this is the thing. Like if you go too far into reality to kind of figure it out, you just kinda of have to sometimes let fiction be fiction. Sure. You know? That's let Bartlett be Bartlett. Let fiction be fiction. You've just got to let it be. You know? All right. Let's get to it. All right. Dear listener, you can find our list of, wait for it, every single Buffy <laughs> episode ever via the link in the show notes to this very podcast. You can go and find out our ranking of all the episodes of season one and all the episodes mm-hmm. we've seen to date of season two. We are treating What's My Line as one story. Yes. It will have a single spot on this list. Where is it going to go? Okay. Now, the criteria for this list is how soon would you want to watch it again, right? Yes. I mean, that is the big, because everything else we have, the criteria is when would you would you watch it again? That's, well, okay, that's the overall guiding criteria, but uh-huh. we don't need to get necessarily too caught up on that. It's how good is it? Where how does it go on the list of every episode ever? Is it better than all the other episodes? Then it goes at the top. Huh. Okay, let me yeah. let me save you, you a have moment's a rumination. Yes. I have a slot in mind. Okay. I feel pretty strongly about this and i'm not honestly expecting much of a fight about it okay it's number one right it's number one it's this is better it's more complex all the problems we had with the dark age Mm -hmm. our our number two episode the episode that we discussed last week Mm -hmm. we we talked a lot about how strong that episode is and how the only reason that it's in second place is that it lacks some of the grand continuity of Mm -hmm. buffy that it lacks some of like the real emotional punch it doesn't address much of the central 
thematic thread it doesn't that ties quite together feel Buffy like as mature a unified Buffy. story. Right. Yeah. This mm-hmm. feels like mature Buffy. This feels yeah. like the most mature this Buffy. This feels like Buffy. Yeah. This is the Buffy we're gonna get for the next, you know, five and a half seasons. Mm-hmm. Um this is this is the real deal for me. This is um, where it starts. We've got we've got great spike in Drusilla. We've got Drusilla's personal relationship with Angel showing up. We have Angel as a real narrative force. You we know? have real consequences. Yeah. We're dealing with with the big thematic stuff, you mm-hmm. know, slayers, right. <laughs> watchers cancel. Identity. Absolutely. Mm-hmm. We're, we're addressing a ton of stuff. We're foreshadowing yeah. a ton of stuff. We're building to the yeah. rest of the season that, that that's going to be a roller coaster ride. And we're also grounding the story in all of these cute little human moments. Yeah. You know, there's there's uh, nothing for Cordelia me in this Xander episode. Cordelia stuff, which is fantastic. Cordelia the Oz and Xander, and Willow. Willow, Angel yeah. and Buffy, oh, yeah. reach a new mm-hmm. plateau mm-hmm. here. The only thing that's missing from this episode, in terms of the, the story for the rest of the season, is Jenny Calendar. Yeah. She's the only kind of, of, of presence that was conspicuously absent. And, mm-hmm. and... I'm happy but, with that because well God enough, knows there though, wasn't any because space after for the her. dark age, I mean, we need some time. We need some space where Jenny is not. You know, no, Jenny sure, but, has backed away. But yeah. in terms of framing this, I mean, mm-hmm. she's conspicuous even by the fact there isn't a reference made to right. her. You know, mm-hmm. um, had she even been, yes, an absent presence, if you right. like, in mm-hmm. this episode, it would have just done everything that it needed to do. Mm-hmm. But in terms of setting the stage for the rest of the season. It absolutely and works. And for giving us the complicated, the, the the monster of the week stories that have a direct resonance with, with Buffy's Buffy's story and her struggles and all of that kind of stuff. And her sense not, of identity, yeah. Right. It's not a perfect episode, but mm-hmm. it is the most accomplished Buffy that we've seen to date. It's the most Buffy of all the episodes. I don't think it's, I don't, ah. Uh, well, you see, now I'm just making a rod for my own back here. Mm-hmm. I don't think it's even going to be at the top of our list by the end of this season. Yeah. But it is going As to ushering be... ushering in the new phase of Buffy. Absolutely. It, yeah. it is a real shift. We, we talked, you know, consistently throughout about how everything is different now. You know, mm-hmm. how we've pivoted, how we've, we've arrived at all of these points that have been foreshadowed. You know, mm-hmm. we've been building up to Oz and Willow all season. Mm-hmm. We've been building up, building up to Xander and, and Cordelia, Cordelia all right. season. Mm-hmm. We've been, you know, layering this stuff in. And this is when everything starts to happen. Yeah. Yeah, And and even Spike and Drusilla. You know, we've been building up Spike and Drusilla. But this is when we have a real shift in. This is a midpoint. Not like the way we were talking about that that moment where Kendra says, I'm the vampire slayer being a midpoint for this story. I mean, this is a midpoint for the season where everything gets recontextualized from this point forward. And it's also from this point forward that Buffy kind of takes on. uh, Up until now, she's been really kind of resentful of her you know situation as the slayer as the one as all of that yeah. and now we see her appreciating that a little bit more yeah it, it's you know? yes it's it's knocked the edges off that conflict for yeah. her it mm-hmm. allows her a little more space it allows her a little mm-hmm. more nuance you know she doesn't have to be you know petulant it's not an all or nothing proposition to anymore. embrace it as an identity that yeah. one moment where kendra says it's not what you do it's yeah. who you are yeah. you know well and also you know we get to see this episode is the first moment when Buffy's no longer the rookie. Yeah. You know, she's, yeah. <laughs> she is now more experienced than someone. Mm-hmm. And that's worth a lot because right. I think, you know, by implication, what we see in this episode is that, that a lot of Buffy's, you know, resentment toward her role mm-hmm. comes from being, you know, completely disempowered. Right. She mm-hmm. has no choice. She has no authority. She has no experience. Mm-hmm. She's just told to do what she does. And right. anytime she steps out of that, it's it's in this teenage rebellion, mm-hmm. you know, way. Right. I, I do think, you know, without, without talking too much about what's to come for Buffy, I do think that we see a subtle but marked shift in her approach toward her duties yeah. from here on out. Mm-hmm. I um, think so. I, I think it's number one on the list. You know what? I'm with you. 
I think there's I'm there's not a mile between this episode and Prophecy Girl. Yeah. But there's or Dark Age, but there's, there's it does there's represent a there. shift. And I yeah. think that it's a shift into um the kind of storytelling that we come back to Buffy for. Prior to this, these episodes have been good, they've been fun, but it's it's not the stuff that keeps me coming back. Yeah. You know, this is where we start getting into this really rich, very complicated psychological narrative narrative uh territory. So yeah, yeah. I go oh with you. I'll, all right. I'll go with you all the way to number one with that. There it is. There you go. Number one on our list. What's my Unseating line? Part one Prophecy and two. Girl for the first time. There it is. Since the end of season one. So yeah. That's and really, we may be looking yeah. at both ends of our list. Yeah. Next week. Yeah. On Dusted. <laughs> <laughs> we might see another unseating that is not quite so triumphant. Next week on Dusted, Ted. We'll yeah. be talking about that next <laughs> Wednesday. In the meantime, you can always get in touch with us. You can email us, podcast at storywonk.com. You can come join the brilliant and insightful conversation. This is where you, our brilliant listeners, pick up all the little bits and tidbits that we missed yes. during the episode. You can find that discussion over on forum.storywonk.com. Or you can follow us on Twitter. Storywonk is at Storywonk. Lonnie is at Lonnie Diane Rich. And I am at Paper Bullets on Twitter. Come follow us, hang out with us, chat with us. There's always more to be said about these episodes that is it we're going to wrap up and after the music a short spoiler section yes about what is to come before we wrap up of course a sincere thank you to the brave and valiant souls who have ventured over to our patreon page that is p-a-t-r-e-o-n dot com and pledged us a dollar a month or whatever they can afford to help us you know keep the lights on and make more podcasts we have announcements of new podcasts coming very very soon very stay soon. tuned to storywonk.com for that but all of those podcasts this show all the stuff that we do at storywonk we can only do it because of your generous support patreon.com slash storywonk please and thank you <laughs> that is it for this week's show after the music a short spoiler section we'll see you then until next week i'm alistair stevens and i'm lonnie diane rich and this is dusted So let's just be clear. Nothing is off the table. All right. of Buffy, all of Angel, we can spoil it all within these hallowed and sacred halls okay. of the spoiler zone. <laughs> Feels kind of cool. It does feel kind of cool. <laughs> I don't know how to take off the leash. I've been like so trying to like keep my comments down. I know, I know. So, well, okay, let's talk about what's coming next. Obviously, we had a few huge turning right. points this episode. We see the rise of Drusilla as the mm -hmm. big bad. We're foreshadowing the conflict through the rest of the, 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 the back half of this season. Yeah. Obviously, as we're drawing closer to Angel and we're, we're spending a lot of time on mm -hmm. Angel as a man and a vampire and the exact nature of his demonic influence. And we're right. doing great work to undercut that stuff. I think that the scene in the ice rink, the kiss, mm -hmm. works so much better when you know what's coming. Oh, absolutely. When you know what's coming. When you understand exactly how much fire Buffy is playing with in that right. moment. And that it's mm -hmm. not a cute you know, yeah, yeah. <laughs> this is not something that can be overcome trivially. This is, you right. know, this is really going to turn on. Her. Well, that's the thing about Joss Whedon is that you always have consequence. Like yeah. we never miss an opportunity for consequence. And the thing is, is that as Buffy and Angel get closer, as she stops seeing the vampire within him, yeah. then that just so much more when he comes, when they have sex and he comes out and he is 
and jealous and he mm-hmm. is a monster um that that shock for her is felt so much because she has stopped seeing what he really is in a very real sense this kiss is the moment that is going to echo through the rest of yeah. Buffy this is going to be her reminder that she can't be a child mm-hmm. this is going to be her reminder that well, she can't well this whole season is trust. about she but, is never the girl that she was before this season yeah, yeah. you're never going to see that girl no, but, again but specifically yeah. that moment of of you know trust and peace and and you know happiness mm-hmm. that kiss that she is never again going to be able to look past the vampire yeah um, in mm-hmm. any in any of her lovers or yes mm-hmm. let's talk a little about Oz Oz was making oh me crazy God. this whole thing he's fantastic yes. I love him and Willow is it weird that there's no foreshadowing at all of of Oz of Oz is that he's a werewolf yeah. I don't think that they knew at this point I think that they saw like how cool he was I think they wanted to bring in a boyfriend for Willow I think they wanted to like you know build up their giving uh Cordelia and Xander a run so they wanted to you know give Willow something right because um, the only other viable candidate is Giles and that would have been weird oh, Jonathan <laughs> the only other viable candidate is Giles, okay. and that would have been weird. <laughs> no, Giles and Willow have kind of an interesting relationship, I think, that we see throughout the, the seasons of, oh, of Buffy. Oh, in many ways, yeah. Giles and Willow is my, my favorite relationship one of the, the whole yeah, show. Yeah, one of the yeah. best relationships there. But, um, but I mean, I like Oz. I like, I, I think that, I like that they made him a vampire. Or not a vampire, I'm sorry, a werewolf. <laughs> um, I'm going off on my, like, you know, demons. Um. I like that they made him a werewolf. I like that they gave him something uh, interesting to be other than, you know, Willow's boyfriend and all that kind of stuff. Um, But it does feel a little bit weird. Like he feels sort of uh, shoehorned in a little bit into this episode. I mean, narratively, Oz is performing a lot like Angel did in the beginning. Like Angel would come in, have nothing narratively to do with whatever else was happening. He just sort of was in there and he was like, hi, I am the boy, you know. And, And so we have that sort of thing happening with Oz in the these episodes that every episode he's in he's like this kind of wedged in there doesn't really advance the narrative not right. really performing as part of the story but just sort of this like little added thing that like we're going to be bringing him out later that's fair but you it's know? a beat rather than a scene and we're not no, supposed true. He to doesn't necessarily have the be paying weight. attention he's to a him, secondary you know yeah. love interest as opposed to angel who is the main love interest which means that angel's weight is obviously going to be narratively a lot bigger um but with oz we're finding a lot of that same thing like they just don't know how to make him part of the story until he's part of the story until they give him a role would you rather have had a big introductory episode would you rather have i would rather have had oz i would rather have our first thing with oz be that he's a werewolf and that that he's you know the monster of the week in the way that we get him later because he is a monster of the week later on um and i would rather have that be you know the first moment and and that when they bring in oz like if they had him like in that um in that episode where he sees willow in the uh um in the eskimo in the eskimo outfit and he's you know kind of entranced by her and inkle mummy girl um i think that that's kind of cute you know but we keep bringing him back in where there's no real narrative role for him to play like Jonathan, at least in the in the times that we see Jonathan, Jonathan has a narrative role. He's he's part of you know uh, Cordelia's deciding that younger men are the way to go. In, uh, um, in I don't think I can go with you on this. Reptile. I don't think I don't think I can I can subscribe to the idea that Jonathan is more narratively 
necessary yeah. than no, all. He plays a narrative the role. No. He's the guy that Empata almost sucks the face off of. I he's think, also he oh, no, has sure. something no, like in when that he's one moment, there. Yes, yes. When he's in there, there's a purpose to Jonathan. He's not thrown in because they want to make something with him. They made something with him because you know because they liked they needed somebody to do this little role in the background. But this is one of these things like with Angel, we want a love interest, but we don't have a narrative role for him, so we're going to have him come in and give a danger you know warning and then run off and not be part of the narrative. You can lift the stuff with Oz directly out of any of these episodes and lose nothing. Yeah, we've commented on that before. Mm -hmm. I I I mean, you're right. They're on the same spectrum. For me, the stuff with Oz is so much less odious, partly because it's just so so much much more charming. And it's played for, Mm -hmm. for, you know, it's played for levity. Um, So the other big turning point in this episode is, of course, the shift in power between Spike and Drusilla. We talked about that uh, in the main body of the episode. And obviously this is foreshadowing this, this rising conflict through the back half of the season. When you watched this for the first time, did you have a sense of where this was going? Did you have a sense of, of... of how this storyline would turn out? Okay, well, no, this actually wasn't what I was expecting. At this point in the in the season when I saw Spike and Drusilla, you know, wander off, I thought that they were going to come back, they were going to wreak havoc, they were going to try to, like, <laughs> raise some kind of evil or whatever and, uh, and right. try to, you know, bring an apocalypse, you know. Beats that have been confirmed by the structure of these episodes where we have these but engagements wait. and then disengagements mm-hmm. and, and we have these, these weak sauce conclusions when Spike retires to his lair and, you know, lives to fight another day. Exactly. You know, that we were going to have something like that until the end of the season and then she would kill spike and she would kill drusilla and then that would be it for the season then we come back next next season with somebody else um what i absolutely love which is coming up very soon in surprise and innocence um Mm -hmm. is this sense of it's not spike and drusilla it is actually angel who becomes the big bad and when buffy has to destroy angel at the end of the season i mean first of all that kills me every time but the (laughs) fact that she she has to kill the man she loves that spike and drusilla are are simply tools in something that actually is angel season as the bad guy um and that in the end you know we have spike who actually helps buffy take (laughs) angel down which i absolutely loved i loved that turn and how most motivated it was by spike's just general selfishness that you know he likes a world full of you know of happy meals on legs you know i mean i absolutely love his motivation for pairing up with buffy for becoming uh you know buffy's partner in this i love how that sets up them working together as a team in later seasons sure sure. um no this is the season more than any other that that takes an unconventional approach to that big bad structure um this is the season that plays with that Oh, and it just rips your heart out. Killing yeah, Spike yeah. and Drusilla wouldn't have taken a chunk out of Buffy. No, but it but would have been a perfectly serviceable story. It would have been story, serviceable, particularly absolutely. With this, mm-hmm. Particularly with this reframing. Right. I think this midpoint switch of empowering Drusilla yeah. and, and leaving Spike in a wheelchair. Yeah. Um, coming off of this, you really do have all the motive force you need. This show does not need to do what it does with Angel in the back half of this season. No, but it it's could the have. perfect thing. I mean, no, it is I, such I'm, a heart-wrenching I'm thing. not saying at all that Right, it's but bad. it's above and beyond. It's, it's so yeah. far above and beyond. They've already, but with this reveal at the end of this episode, yeah. with this power inversion between Drusilla and Spike, they've already gone further than they needed to in terms of you know a season of traditional television. Right. Establishing Drusilla as the real big bad yeah. and Spike, who's all with, you know, the theatricality, the mm-hmm. pomp, the, the, the venom of Spike 
having him reduced in power right. you get a really interesting character study right there and you also get to put the focus where it belongs on drusilla's insanity on that the the it, yeah the byplay that we were talking about in the main episode mm-hmm. of of her insanity and evil you it's know absolutely um, genius i love the way drusilla would have been a magnificent big bad for this season mm-hmm. and they could have just kept angel on that slow boil you right. know they could have just kept doing what they're doing that would have been great mm-hmm. the fact that they don't do that is one of maybe like the top five reasons that Buffy is the show that it is. Yeah. Um, so far exceeding Ex- not just expected. expectations, but you know, you, you're already, you know, blowing right. people's minds. You're already wowing people with the, the ambition of your narrative. Mm-hmm. Let's just turn that up to 11, but shall we? This is the thing though. Like there's one of the things that Joss Whedon does so brilliantly is that there's, there's, Never a moment where you can't like make something more personal that you sure. can't make it, you know, give it more weight in in the lives of your characters and also torturing your characters. I mean, you think about I think Joss Whedon just spends every day thinking, what is the worst possible thing that can happen to this character? <laughs> what is the thing that would just wrench their heart out the most? And then how do I make that happen? But that's the understanding yeah. that underpins all the conflict in Buffy. Those Absolutely. are the moments that are going to destroy us emotionally between yeah. here and the end of the oh, season. God. What is, the, what the, is the, the worst thing that could possibly happen yeah. to this character? And, and then, then it you comes see it. from character that yeah. none of this stuff is layered in. It, it's never a question of, you know, the bigger supernatural threat. Right. It's mm-hmm. never, this is an evil unlike any we've seen before. Mm-hmm. It's always, what is your vulnerability? It's an interesting flavor of evil, though. Every season we do have, I mean, even in the seasons where it probably doesn't work as well, like season four with uh, the initiative, where it's it's kind of a little bit lame. Um, even in seasons like that, where the big bad of the season doesn't necessarily like live up to that that weight. They are always interesting takes on on evil it's not the same thing every takes, season yeah. Yeah. it's a different perspective on how that evil works and i think that to the point where we get into season seven uh which i understand is something of a controversial season for a lot of people but is is i think far and away my favorite season of buffy is season seven how we we rise up to this crescendo of of evil and bring all these characters together and and see what happens with them you know um i, I just think it's it's amazing what they do that that every season it's a different angle on evil it's not Mm -hmm. the same kind of oh we have a danger they're going to bring an apocalypse they're going to you know that we we spend time with each one of these evils looking at a different element of how evil erupts and 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 we even deal with a human you know face of evil in season six too which i think is really really interesting right and and one of the big kind of thematic crossing points um for for buffy as a whole all right let's 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 wrap this up unless you have anything else for for the spoilers i think i'm done all right Well, that's that. Thanks for listening. You guys, I would urge you all, please, you've all been incredibly, you know, sweet and considerate. Uh, There are a a number of people who are not listening to this part of the podcast because they haven't yet seen all of Buffy. Even if Mm -hmm. they've seen stuff from later seasons, they haven't uh, seen the entire thing. So you never know when you might inadvertently spoil. So I would urge you, if you're posting comments on the website, if you're posting stuff on the forums, if you're tweeting at us in public, exercise a certain discretion. Let's, let's, you know, let these discoveries be all that they can be for those fortunate few who have not yet experienced them Mm -hmm. some people out there don't know what's coming with angel (laughs) and i i don't know how they don't but oh my god that's amazing i can't wait thank you so much for listening we will be back next week with ted